the industrialized style care for breeding might be what is necessary to keep the animals safely by keeping them clean and healthy. And obviously disease and illness is a legitimate risk when you're keeping hundreds of animals. And maybe the rack systems are what you need to access as a breeder. And, and I've said that so many times. I'm not a proponent for saying get rid of rack systems at all. I just think that maybe there's more we can do with the racks. And maybe the person that has one ball python or one corn snake doesn't have to keep in a plain sterile tub. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you all so much for being here. After a very long weekend in Florida, we join you. And uh, we have things like T-shirts available on our website, as well as isopods and all that cool stuff. Uh, maybe some substrates coming up. I'm trying to uh, to get all that stuff set up. So let me guys or let me know your all's opinion on that. Nope, y'all's. Y'all's opinion on that. Y'all's depends on your dialect. It's y'all's. Your all's is not correct in any <laughs> dialect. But y'all is depends who you talk to. I mean, y'all's is correct in some. Your all's is not correct in any. So let's continue. <laughs> Thank you. Just keep a lookout on our website for new things we might be popping up. Obviously on eBay. Also, do we have um, clowns? Clown isopods are so awesome. I think we also, we haven't uh, thanked our Patreon supporters in a while. That's true. I think you should definitely do that. Thank you to anyone who supports us and supports this podcast and supports what we put out for you guys. We are always trying to um, find new and different angles, different things to talk about, different things to promote. Um, so thank I'm, you for I'm also going to drop like a hefty discount code for those people who are on Patreon. As far as all of our new stuff coming out, I would like them to test it out pretty much before we uh, before we make it. I, want, I don't know what the word is available to yeah. everyone else. Uh, uh, other than that, we other were... than that, if you noticed our Instagram this weekend, we were not in Philadelphia. We yes. took a quick weekend trip to Melrose, Florida um, to Carp Southeast Carpet Fest. And if you don't know, Carpet Fest is just a place for people who are really into snakes to not feel alone, um, <laughs> basically. To it's feel so retreat <laughs> for the snake people who feel very alone. <laughs> um, just to not feel alone, to feel surrounded by people who are interested in the same things um, you do. And I think Ian Bissell said it best. It's the time to get uh, out of the computer and out of your phone and be in person with all of these people that you've talked to so much on the Internet. I want to give credit to Eric because I think he always says that describing Carpet Fest. And... Oh, sorry. Ian stole it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Don't create drama. <laughs> Ooh. Well, whoever said it, it's a great line. Um, but how good was the between Eric and Mike as far as the, or, yeah. um, or sorry, Ian? Now, Ian now I mess it up. Ian the and Mike MCs during of the, the event. It was great. Um, thank you to everyone who put on Southeast Carpet Fest. So Cody and Pia, Amanda and Dallas, Ian, anyone else that I'm forgetting who like put it on? Justin, duh, what am I doing? Sorry. There's a million people, but definitely special thanks to Cody and Pia who also got us a discount in getting into the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, which was really, really awesome as well. Yeah, it was great. Um, we got to meet so many people and hang out with people that um, I never would have even thought I'd wow, meet 
or anything like that. So thank you guys so much for whoever came up and talked to us and we made some new friends. Yeah, absolutely. And people who are like friends of the podcast that we haven't met in person. And uh, Florida is kind of a place where we haven't visited a lot before. So we got to meet a lot of new people. And it was great. And all like the uh, the NIDO talks and stuff like that. It was really informative. Oh, and Stephen was- Tillis is so smart, y'all. <laughs> That's definitely one thing I learned from Carpet Fest is how smart he is. I also, I really enjoy, enjoyed, uh, I guess, Dr. Oz. Oz, which is an easy one to remember. I but. know, but I already, I always think of the TV show, Dr. Oz, and I wonder, yes. like... Does, I don't know. He gets that he get all the pressure? time. That's why I didn't uh, yeah. want to bring it up. But it's, like, you it's know possible to separate... Oh, all the time. All the time. But it was so crazy to see the effects of these animals that have Nido and the fact that they're, like, they are not... They're not getting just getting sick and dying. They're actually getting so much inflammation and mucus that they're actually suffocating. You know, so it's like it's really terrible for the animals, and uh, it's something that obviously our hobby needs to keep a, a good eye on. And especially as breeders, we have a lot of animals, so it was good. It's good information to know for sure. So you are educated. Other than that, do we have anything else to add as far as Florida goes? Listen. You talked about the alligator farm. That was great. It was great to see all the different. I mean, I've truly never been to an alligator farm. Um, didn't even know how many different types of alligators and crocodiles they have there every were. Every crocodilian. Uh, it was pretty crazy. Um, we got to see feeding. Favorite one? Uh, uh, Cuban. Yes, Cuban croc. And awesome. Johnston's, but only the babies. Yeah, so the Johnston's kind of like looks like a gharial as far as like it has that crazy snout. And there was one that was just like sunbathing right in front of the glass with his mouth open. And we thought he was dead because he didn't move for like literally 45 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, that, that ended up being one of our favorite animals. But we did uh, also shoot video of all of it. So it'll all be coming to YouTube in the next three to six months, I'm sure. Um, Darren asked about gators in Louisiana. Yes, there are, but it's not like a like if you go on a boat and not you see often them, in uptown it's, <laughs> no no well not in new orleans but they are in louisiana i've seen them before but i've never seen like a dedicated farm like well kept <laughs> well yeah because it's not a farm yeah. it's really it's like a, a zoological it's a zoo. facility right yeah. in louisiana i just see them in their natural area whatever yeah and i guess farm is kind of maybe not the best vernacular to use to to describe it because it is you know a zoological facility it's not a place that breeds alligators to like sell for skins or anything like that at least that i know um but yeah okay i think that was it that was it so our guest tonight tonight you may know which him. by the way i still get we were doing a podcast tonight we got into philly at 1 a.m last night yes. thank you spirit and frontier for not killing us um but now we're here doing podcasts and we are with dylan perrin of animals at home canada Bam. Maybe not Dylan, bam. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you guys very much for having me. And I have to say, to just rip an intro off the cuff is pretty impressive. That's like the most annoying thing for me. I record thousands of intros, I feel like, for each podcast and delete them and redo them. So great job on that. Well, that's why all are always bad. <laughs> They're a little like shaky. That. They're bad. <laughs> no, it was great. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we've been, we've been doing it a lot, but we're... Uh, eh. but, uh, um, thank you. <laughs> so I guess let's do the... I think you have probably a pretty common story of most, you know, see a garter snake, blah, 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 blah. So uh, how'd you get started in this thing? 
Yeah, the the garter snake is definitely true. I grew up in the country, and of course, I I don't think I discriminated against the type of animals that I liked. Sort of loved all animals, and and but definitely, I, I have a pool in my backyard. We had a pool in my backyard, so I spent a lot of the time catching frogs in the morning that uh, fell in the, into the pool and whatnot. But I, eventually, I did go and catch my garter snake, which I had for a day. And I think in Canada, it's actually illegal to uh, catch garter snakes and keep them in captivity. So I was probably breaking the law as a ten year old. <laughs> that's right and uh, i didn't have you know classic like put it in a 10 gallon aquarium have no clue what's going on this is like before internet was really a thing and uh, no lid or anything and the next day it was gone and i was so disappointed i had no clue how it must have gotten out <laughs> and uh and yeah that's that's kind of ever since then i've always been obsessed with animals but it took me up until i think i was about 15 until i got into the hobby and that's when i really got my first crested gecko between my childhood and then i had you know fish budgies dogs cats the the usual but uh, 15 is when i first jumped into the hobby and in, in sort of a small way i just had the crested gecko and that's kind of what i had for a long time yeah and how do how do you hit that point where you went from one crested gecko and moved on and kind of decided to build a collection well, I had this one crested gecko and I had him for about eight years. I still have him. He's like 15 years old. He's, he's a great little gecko. And um, one of my friends also had a gecko and she'd asked me if I could house or, or, or uh, you know, watch it for a few days. So, I, so they brought the terrarium over and I watched it for, I think, three or four days. And then I realized how easy it was to care for two geckos <laughs> and how awesome it would be to have a second one. And, and that's sort of what got the ball rolling to, to sort of build up a small collection and and after that, I went and bought my own uh, a second gecko, which was a day gecko. And then while researching day geckos, I started falling in love with snakes as well. And I had an, an interest in snakes before that. So it didn't take long for me to add a couple snakes to the collection. And I mean, my collection is quite small. It's only six animals. But but that's sort of how it started to snowball in, in that sense. And in the beginning, I mean, were you paying attention to your husbandry to the effect that you do today? Or how do you originally set up that animal? No, well, you know, with the crested gecko, I did actually do a, a plants. I, I just, I don't even know why I did it, but I did do a live plant, planted a terrarium, this, basically the same terrarium that's sitting behind me now. But other than that, it, it was just, I, I knew really nothing about, about their care. The, for the crested gecko, it was just mix the food and give the food every couple of days. And, and that was pretty much it. It wasn't until, you know, in the last few years, that I've really started to dig into this a little bit more. And I mean, with crested geckos, it seems like they're often, um, obviously, you don't need supplemental heat and stuff like that. But also people usually just give them that powdered diet. Uh, do you now do anything like supplementation or anything like that? Well, I do use uh, Arcadia's, I should remember what it's called, but they have like a mineral dust that you can add to the to the just the powder. And so I mix that in as well for a little bit of supplements. And I do feeders once in a while. But because he basically only ate the powder for so long, he's pretty reluctant to eat anything else, which I, I, I sort of regret at this point, I wish I did have him on feeders, I think crested geckos should maybe eat more insects than than crested gecko diet in some ways. And um, so so yeah, and, and now I have also added UVB as well. So that's something that I'm toying with as well. But you know, crested gecko is such an easy animal to get into because like you said, it's just like mix the powder and no heat and almost anybody can start with it. So that was what got me into it. Yeah. And I'm curious as someone who doesn't, you know, use a lot of that equipment, does that add heat to the enclosure or how do you make sure that it doesn't get too hot for your crested gecko? The UVB itself runs really cool. And the, my reptile room itself remains quite cool. It doesn't normally get above 75 degrees so maybe 77 78 in the summer but that would be max so i never have any issues with temperature and so 
the warmest I'll see his enclosure in, in the summer would be you know, 80, 81 degrees. But of course, there's a, quite a large gradient as well. So I, I never really have to worry about that. And kind of where did you go from that uh, crest gecko, the day gecko? Do you do you still work with those? Yeah, I still have the the original day gecko as well. So I, I got her and like I said, uh, so I actually made her a planted of a varium as well. I converted a China cabinet into an enclosure, which was just a massive project. And I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it's almost too much work for what it's worth. And and then I got into to my boa. So the first boa I bought was a, a just a Central American sort of Sonoran. Actually, he's he's 50% Sonoran desert boa and 50% Colombian boa. And and he was just in a in a tub, like just a regular tub, you know, paper towel. That's how I started as well and and slowly started to kind of learn along the way. Yeah, I guess there's kind of a definitely a transition from from lizards to snakes. I mean, especially it seems like the standards are set a bit lower for snakes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it, it in a way it is. It's it's there's certain like dart frogs, for example, have that high level of care right from the get go. Like nobody's going to keep a dart frog in just a plain sterile environment. And so every animal almost has its foundation where you can start with. And, and yeah, geckos tend to have a, a little bit higher than snakes. And, and, and I actually had no interest in snakes whatsoever until for some reason, you know, I, it's hard to say what, what turns you on to a certain species, but for some reason I just fell in love with these boas and, and, and it was part of the appeal initially is, is that ease of care, you know, that sort of tub paper towel, water dish. And, and, and I was really excited about that. That was great. It was going to be a very easy animal to care for, you know? And I mean, at that time though, were you... Did you already kind of have a grasp on how to keep temperatures and humidity from your day gecko or were you just kind of getting used to that? Well, yeah, in, in terms of the care, like I had a, a decent grasp on husbandry. I, luckily, snakes are, are, like you said, quite easy. And so I wasn't, I didn't have to struggle too hard to, to learn how to care for the boa because it was fairly easy once I set the tub up and the humidities were balanced quite easily. And uh, so, so, yeah, so it was it was more of, you know, once you learn how to take care of one species, I feel like you can easily copy and paste sort of the archetype of learning how to care for an animal. 100%. Oh, I thought you touched my leg to ask a question. No, I touched your leg to stop popping your beer can. <laughs> Great. Nothing to do with podcast. I have to edit that out. Too. Hey, I didn't hear it. <laughs> so so what what made you make that transition from, you know, being pretty minimalistic to kind of your more modern philosophy that you have at the moment. Well, so, so I had these three animals at the time, the crested gecko, the day gecko and the boa. And I was just starting to become obsessed with the hobby. And I start, you know, it, th that was a time where I'm just like every day looking at the local classifieds, looking for new animals and seeing different, you know, boas and ball pythons and whatnot for sale all the time. And, you know, I, I eventually stumbled upon a another boa that was essentially in a, almost like a rescue situation. This was somebody who was trying to sell it for a couple hundred dollars. And this animal was in horrible shape, stuck shed all over the place. No external heat. This person actually called me an idiot for suggesting that snakes needed heat. And uh, it, it was really... <laughs> wow. Yeah. So somehow I... I it got her to basically give me the animal. I said, look, no one is going to pay for this. This animal's essentially on a deathbed. It, it wasn't that close to dying, but it was, it was on the path to death if it had left in those conditions. And it was in like a 24 or a, yeah, 24 by 18 by 18 exoterra, which it was a small bow. It was, um, I think she was around a hundred grams when I got her. So 
it's not a it's not an ideal enclosure for a boa you could make it work but she wasn't utilizing the the vertical space or anything like that and and so i went and picked up this animal and she basically gave it to me for free thankfully and you know and, and she and the when she said when she gave it to me the thing she said is i'm not going to give you the enclosure because uh, i want to get a bearded dragon next and i thought okay that is so these little things were starting to start to stick in my head and i thought that was kind of weird you know this person really ha had no idea how to take care of the snake and now she's going to get into a, a different animal and she clearly has no idea how to care for that so that was just you know stuck in my head and but when i got home i was so excited about this new this new boa and i eventually figured out where she was from and and she was het albino and my other one is het leopard so you know i start going down the the more thing because i actually enjoy despite what people might think is and i've even though i've said it i, I do find morphs quite fascinating and and my I, and you know, I have these two animals, even though it makes no sense to breed those two animals to create anything. But but for some reason, I was so excited, you know, making your Punnett squares and whatnot. And I, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, going 10 years out, this giant breeding plan. And but then what I started noticing, I've, this is maybe more specific to my area because I do live in a fairly small community. And I mean, we have one reptile expo a year and there might be eight vendors type thing. So it's not a huge reptile community. And I kept seeing the same animals for sale. There's specifically this one litter of boas for sale online that I think it was like eight to 10 months. This person continuously trying to move these, these, this litter of boas and she kept dropping the price, dropping the price and nobody's buying them. So that started to, to seem interesting to me. And, and, I, and then I actually traced this rescued boa back to that litter as well. So what it made me realize is that I cannot add more animals to this market. This market is so saturated that even the animals that are being produced are not ending up in the right homes. So that was the sort of the, what initially planted the seed for me to start thinking just a little bit more ethically, just in my area. Because if I breed boas, now I have, you know, say 20 boas, tw 20 baby boas that are going to live for 20, 30 years. That's like 400 to 600 years, uh, you know, boa years. Like, <laughs> it's like, do I want to be responsible for that? That That's a huge commitment unless I'm willing to care for all of them, you know? So, so that was kind of what initially started it. And, and, but, but I didn't, I mean, I, at the time I wasn't on YouTube, I didn't have a podcast or anything. So then I just decided that I would just enjoy the animals. And even then my care wasn't anything more than, you know, a tub really with maybe a little bit more height, but no light, extra lighting or anything. I think I had maybe Aspen substrate, but, but that was the beginning of what allowed me to kind of go down this path. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you kind of like stopped yourself. I think a lot of people, it's hard. It, we always balance like how much weight do we put on ourselves for that animal once it's out of our hands? Um, and I think a lot of people don't allow themselves to think about that at all. And so then they do end up saturating the market or doing whatever because they're just like, I want to breed this. I want, I get, I love, I want to breed. I want to feel like, you know, see what it's like. You also need to detach but... yourself from the outcomes, unfortunately, sometimes to justify you doing it because mm -hmm. there's such a large majority. Um, and I kind of say majority that don't go to the right place and don't fulfill, you know, have a full life. I mean, uh, the, the one thing that happens with those $2,500 ball pythons, is at least they're being kept decent enough, you know, for a decent amount of time until yeah. they're super cheap. Um, but, you know, even for us, when we sell corn snakes, I would say about 50%, just like your garter snake will, uh, will get out. And, you know, we're trying to think like, how do we mitigate these things? How do we control these things? 
And at the end of the day, it's like as a breeder, you can do all you want, but you don't have control over the outcomes of these animals. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 so right. And and for me, like I said, I think because of the area that I live in, it, it was basically by watching the online ads, it was very evident that not the most likely case was that I was just not even going to be able to sell them, even mm -hmm. to sell them to bad homes, which is sort of heartbreaking in some ways as well. But at the same time, I was like, I can't afford to care for 20 animals. Like, what if I have to do this forever? And so, so that's what made me stop. But I can tell you, I, I really, I really, I wanted to breed really badly, you know, because it is an exciting part of the hobby. And I, I, I felt like I was ready to advance myself and try something new. And, and like I said, the genetics of the morphs sort of adds an interesting aspect to it. And I can totally see the appeal. It was just, I, I had to make that call. It's, what, what will I do with these animals and where are they going to end up? And, and that, that's what initially pulled me back. I mean, now you have a podcast, you have Instagram, you have a website with, and you participate in so many things across the hobby as far as husbandry goes. I mean, now you could have a clutch and find great homes for mm -hmm. 10 to 15, you know, however many animals you produce. Does that make you feel different about it? Well, I, I would never write off the potential of breeding in the future because I, I do want to try it. And I think it would be, it's exciting. And I mean, right now, the place that I'm living in really does not warrant the space for it. But when I do have a bigger space, and, and like you said, like I would probably be able to sell them to really good homes and 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 whatnot. So I would definitely do that in the future, provided that I have the space. And 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 that was one of the like you guys kind of had mentioned. You know, it's really tough as a breeder to ensure that the person buying the animal knows what they're doing. It's like how much how much support can you provide every single person you sell? So that's another, I'm sure, I don't know if you guys run into that at all, but I'm sure you're open to have as many questions as the, the buyers have, but at some point, like you don't have enough time in the day to answer questions. It's so hard. It's, it's one, like how much do you answer questions and how much do you like put your heart into answering those questions? If that makes sense. Like I'm a person, enough, enough. right. Well, I'm a person like I'm emotional. Like I feel, I feel this need to do things that I probably don't have to, but like, especially with customers, I'm like, oh, I need to like give them everything and anything, you know? And and but. listen, like 90% of the time, they're not even our customers. They're random people <laughs> on Instagram too, which yeah. makes it even weirder because you don't actually, you have taken this responsibility randomly because you have like an Instagram page. So you, I'm feeling, I'm feeling this responsibility for something that I had zero involvement in. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a lot to ask for. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels very random. But. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the issues for sure. It doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you sit on is that there's a lot of people that buy the animals that seemingly have no intention in learning how to care for them. And, and that that's for sure an issue. And then hopefully as we evolve, that will become maybe solved in some way. But I mean, how many animals, I mean, pet stores, how many animals do they sell? They send them home with people that, really have no clue what they're doing i'm not saying pet stores shouldn't sell them but it, it's sort of an interesting issue that we have to to jump over and how much of that responsibility lies on the on pet the, store right or See, the breeder it's the same thing. and theirs the is even worse than us like we're just you know they're selling 10 times what we're selling and like is that their responsibility you know because a lot of breeders would say go do your research and come mm -hmm. back to me type of thing but a pet yeah. store can't say really that work. <laughs> it doesn't 
that never really worked because that person's just going to go get the $25 corn snake off the other table of the guy who does not care. So at the end of the day, you're still, you're still kind of not serving the animals, whether it's your animal or someone else's animal. Yeah. It's yeah. Making the sale is a big part of it. Obviously running a, a giant corporate business like that. And it does get tough. And that that is sort of one of the reasons that I started drifting towards providing more enrichment or just so the, the people that are outside of the hobby, when they look at it, they don't see a plain tub with a water dish and think I can easily do that. I tr Obviously, I trust breeders in order to care for animals in a racking system and, and make sure their animals are healthy. But random dude off the street that sees a tub with a paper towel and a water dish it's it, it seems like it may be too easy to their naked eye and they're jumping into something that they're not willing to commit to learning about you can easily get 20 animals in your first month of you know <laughs> of having them totally yeah it and yeah that's the other thing it, it, it does expand yeah exactly it expands so so easily and it's so fun to buy new animals that was the other thing i became aware of is like when you buy a new animal that excitement that you get like a dopamine hit and it, it, it's great to have that, but at the same time, you want to make sure that the you're not sacrificing the other ones in your care to you know make an, another room for another animal and so on and so on. I think also what we see in corn snakes is that people take that mentality, the the sterile mentality, and honestly, corn snakes and king snakes, some of the North American colubrids, benefit so much from having just substrate to burrow in. So it's mm -hmm. like even as a commercial breed, even with someone with hundreds of animals we still do, you know, three inches of sub, like the basics, like the three inches of substrate and that kind of thing and hides and stuff like that. And it's like, people aren't even doing that without, without regard to the species. I mean, you're not even thinking about the actual species you're keeping. So uh, I'm thinking, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's very true. And it, it does the sort of sterile setup does separate you from the wild counterpart of the animal. So when you see a, a corn snake in a plain, tub without substrate you actually if, if you're not familiar with the species natively if that makes sense you you actually can't picture what that animal looks like in the wild or, or what its habitat looks like so it, it's tough to understand how it should be behaving it's like well reptiles are so tough they can live through almost anything and so it can be easy to trick ourselves into thinking that we're doing a great job but they just keep plugging away with very minimum requirements yeah, I think for, for a very long time, our standard was if it breeds, that means we're keeping it right. Yeah, yeah. Do you think as people, you know, who are putting information out there, we're in the spotlight, being on social media and everything, like, do we, should we, you know, put our things like one step above what is expected? Because should we expect that people are going to do one step below what we present? Like, is that, the, is that how should we think about it? Put something up and then people will put it down. For well, should we, too, is... you know, sh is that how should we should be thinking about it? Like, we need to go, like, say, five steps past what's, you know, what we would want other people to do. Is that, I don't know, I don't want to think wanna... bad of people or less of people, but is that just even, is that what we should expect? Like, they're going to do less than what we're putting out there, so we should put out more. Does that make sense? What? I, oh, it definitely makes sense. And, and that is kind of the line you have to walk. Like you don't want to say to somebody, you must start with a bioactive enclosure. But I, I like to go back to dart frogs because they're such an interesting species because every dart frog enclosure, frog enclosure you see is essentially bioactive. And it's almost how you have to keep them or, or they'll die because they're quite sensitive. So people see that and they go, that is how you care for a dart frog. There's almost very, there's very little continuum in terms of 
the range of how you can care for them. But at the same time, if you're not a slightly more advanced hobbyist, jumping into something that's too advanced will kill your animal. You know, like you're going to give an RI if you try to do a, a bioactive ball python closure and have no clue how to balance hum heat and humidity, for example. So it, it's, a, it's a good question. Actually, uh, something to think about for sure. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes uh, naturalistic or live planet or bioactive, I mean, we're actually adding too much complexity to it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just like the basic, you know, you start with the basic setup, the aspen, the hide, but the see, water. But see, then I think people branch. are going to go, it's so, uh, it's so weird. <laughs> What's that, that medium, you know, like not as far as bioactive, but like if we just give, I feel like with corn, since they're such beginner pets, we've kind of gotten used to being like, these are the three things you need. This is all you need, you know, mm -hmm. substrate, hide, whatever, like this is all you need. But if we're presenting that to people, like we're giving them that ability to like go lower than that, should we be saying, no, these six things, I don't know. I feel like it's we need to give thing. them examples of how to <laughs> so bring their husbandry weird. to the next level once they get the hang of it or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and it's almost, instead of saying this is all you need, it's it's almost better to say this is how you start. This is actually how you can start caring for your corn snake and you can do this for five, six months. Once you feel comfortable, try adding something different. Try advanced, so that's what I, my biggest thing is, one, I'm not an expert. I don't know anything. And the second thing is I just promote growth. So if you're here, how can you slowly advance your care? Do not jump into something you're not comfortable with. But if you want to start with a plain tub, no problem. Make sure your snake is eating, pooping, growing. Now, maybe in six months, let's add some substrate and then watch the animal. How does it behave? Does, does it seem stressed or is it using that substrate to burrow? Then then that it's almost like a positive feedback loop in a lot of ways mm -hmm. for, for keepers because they start to see their animals do different things. And that's pretty exciting for reptile keepers because so often they're not doing anything. And what were kind of your first steps with your boa? Um, what are kind of the steps you took? Well, the, the first thing for sure was adding some substrate and adding just climbing branches in general so allowing them to climb was huge and, and especially when they were younger they, they still climb a lot which I, I love to see and size was a big one going to a, a six foot long enclosure allowing them to way more space and and even water dish big enough for them to soak in things like that these are a lot of these are are pretty basic and a lot of people are already doing them but a lot of people aren't and some animals aren't going to use a thing to soak in but but the only way to find out if your animal is going to is is to put it in and see what happens, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Melissa, you see us behind our beautiful wooden wall. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little back. flexible. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Our cabin's not uh, built very well. But uh, yeah, and what do you, um, I mean, a BCI, I mean, they get, you know, maybe you're looking five to seven feet if you feed them well. So, I mean, that's a very sizable enclosure. Yeah, and, and right now they're both fairly small still. I've I've been feeding them pretty slowly. The male that I have is the is the uh, basically a Central American boa. He's going to be maxed out at five feet, and the other one may I don't know what she is because she, this came from these breeders that are you know mixing different bloodlines and whatnot. But I could expect her to get to maybe seven feet, and eventually she, I will put her in an eight foot enclosure when it's necessary, and and with height as well because I enjoy watching them climb. And then the latest thing I recently did was add UV them to their both enclosures as well as sort of an added piece of enrichment so what is your going forward i mean what are you looking for as far as enclosure size well i'm i definitely 
eventually with with the the female boa i would like to move up to an eight foot enclosure once once she had once she's at that sort of six foot plus i'd like to get that um and, and these enclosures are de are actually on their way out soon i have some new ones coming in in a couple months um that, that i'm going to work on but and, and then they're going to have some more height as well they're about two feet tall and i, I we're going to go to three feet tall i think and and like i said it's almost time for a house because they need more space <laughs> And I know that uh, kind of we're, we're starting or want to get the standard of at least the body length of the animal. Mm. Uh, it seems like you're going a little bit bigger. Is there any like distinct ratio you're looking for as far as the, the Not really. No, I, I definitely, I, I've wanted to just go longer than the body at some point, just maybe even a few inches to start with and kind of go from there. Like I said, both of them are, are fairly small still, which is kind of nice and, and, but yeah, I think the length of the body is a great place to start because I mean, I don't know, I kind of forget now what the standard was before, but it was almost like, was it three quarters Four of the length? Quarters. Well, yeah, it was three fourths of the body length, typically on like, especially colubrids and stuff like that, which I don't know. Yeah. And so that's where you start to question with some, some of these things are more breeding industrial standards rather than care standards. And then you start running into people that will make claims that they can't thrive in, in larger enclosures which can be true depending on how you set it up. So we, we, we kind of have two worlds, this industrial breeding side, as well as the care side of someone that's never going to breed their animal. It's actually okay if they have an enclosure that's more than three quarters of the body length, you know? I think that especially for something like a boa or a corn snake, I think that they benefit from as much space as you can give them. None of them will go off feed. That's only for ball pythons or mostly for ball pythons. I say that people see that and they, mm -hmm. And they apply it to every other animal. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of ball python myths that carry into other things. And, and when I, you know, when I'm looking at my snakes, so obviously a lot of times they're in their, in their hides sleeping. And at that point you're like, oh man, these enclosures are huge. But as soon as you see them motoring around and exploring, you start to think, wow, I definitely could use some more space. Like, I feel like if, I feel like he would climb eight feet if he had eight feet of space. Oh, absolutely. And and we even have a, a customer, he has like cameras on his corn snake at all time. Oh, cool. And this thing's like, this thing's like eight inches and the enclosure is like huge. And you <laughs> see it literally from top to bottom. It will explore at a very particular time from like 10 to 12 at night, explore every inch of that enclosure. And that also comes to say, or it goes to say as far as uh, my snake doesn't move all day, well, it moves when you don't see it. Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't want to move in front of you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. People are like, my snake's not drinking water. It's like, well, have you looked at it for 24-7 for five <laughs> days straight? <laughs> yeah, and um, as far as we, we did cage size, but um, what else are you doing? You also mentioned things like UVB. Yeah, so with my boas, I've added UVB, and, and eventually, I'm like I said, these enclosures are going to be gone. I'm going to get something with uh, an open mesh top not necessarily screen but because i really want to add halogen lighting as well to add some more you know further the spectrum of the infrared wavelengths which is just something that i'm just learning now and it's something that i did with my day gecko so she has full spectrum light it that's why it just looks like a white dot on the screen because this enclosure is so bright and i have the arcadia the the jungle dawn led bar which provides full spectrum light and of course i have a uvb bar or a uvb tube as well but then also her basking light instead of just a conventional, I mean, there's so many different ways to heat, but the halogen bulbs produce a really nice 
spectrum of wavelength into the infrared wavelength where heat mats and and radiant heat panels and whatnot are, are really on the far so you can break the infrared uh, wavelengths down to three infrared a infrared b and infrared c and infrared a and infrared b are the, the wavelengths that we get mostly from the sun and, and those are the healthy wavelengths that deep or that penetrate very deep into the tissue where infrared c tends to it, stop at the skin and it'll warm the skin but it doesn't penetrate very deep and with my boas i have heat mats and, and a radiant heat panel and whatnot and i, I really want to move away from that as soon as i can to just provide something more natural in terms of their light. So what bulb is it exactly that provides all of that? I mean, are you using something that provides both heat and UV? No. So the, the, for, for my day gecko, I just have an Arcadia 12% UVB bulb. And then the halogen is literally just like a flood halogen from the department yeah. store. It's just Home Depot, find a halogen. That's a, I think it's just a 50 watt bulb because they do get pretty hot and it's just connected to a dimmer. And I just sort of balance the temperatures and, and use a, a, a laser temperature gun just to get the, the basking spot to the right temperature. And that's all I've done there, which is actually fairly cheap considering how expensive some reptile products can be. And it's just healthier as far as I've been, you know, read and been told on the podcast and, and whatnot. And now, I mean, is that something that you run only during the day? Is there some type of uh, light cycle that you like to, to stick with? Yeah, yeah. So with, with the day gecko, obviously, it's just on during the day. It's just a 12 hour, 12 on, 12 off. And and one of the other things I did with the day gecko, which is fun and potentially totally pointless, but and kind of expensive, and I don't necessarily recommend doing it just but it is fun. So I have um, a Philips Hue smart bulb on her enclosure as well. And before her lights turn on, that bulb will click on. And once all the lights turn off, that bulb is the only one remaining, and then it will slowly dim off for about 30 minutes so it sort of simulates a sunset and in the morning it does the opposite that's the first bulb to come on at like 10 percent, and it slowly ramps up and then once it's at its full brightness then the rest of the lights come on and i think that's just for me because it's fun but also i wonder how stressful it is to get blasted by the amount of light that's coming out of that enclosure in one shot so so it, it, it it's just different fun things that trying to simulate somewhat of a natural natural world and, and if i do end up getting halogens with the boas of course i'm, I'm not going to leave those on during the day or during the night because that will sort of mess up the light cycle uh, you know i'm starting to wonder how much heat needs to be provided at night uh, or maybe i just use a heat map but i think there's a lot of people suggesting that maybe night heat is not as necessary as we once thought so once i get down to that road i'll kind of figure out what i'm doing there so what's the balance, I mean, to take between modern, like, keeping techniques and also trying to mimic nature? Because, I mean, obviously, we can only do so much in a box in our room. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing is, is um, so I think it's one of the critiques I sometimes get is that it's not mimicking nature because nature is a lot more harsh than, than what we're providing. And that is a hundred percent true. I mean, I'm not introducing parasites and predators and, <laughs> you know, lack of food and, and, and whatnot. Although some of those things are, I mean, not parasites and predators, but lack of food is sometimes I think, okay, considering I think the hobby tends to feed animals a little bit too much, but so it is important that you can strike a balance, but the balance happens on your ability to care for the animal safely that's where you want to sit. You don't want to sit beyond, you don't want to be at that part where you think if, if you're going to be away for a weekend is, you know, is something going to happen to the enclosure that I can't manage away from here? So you don't want to step so far out into that natural world that, 
that you cannot care for the animal safely. I guess that also that also brings an extra level of complexity. The fact that um, you know, with our collection kept simply with snakes, you know, with just heat, we can pretty safely just go away for a few days and not have to worry. Mm-hmm. Um, are there ways to like automate what you have I was about going to ask? On? Also, are they like connected to your phone or why? Like, I know they have all those special technical things. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything crazy. And again, I'm not this gold standard for bioactive care. So I think there are people out there that do have maybe slightly more level of automation. I do have a misting system that comes on and off a, a couple times a day for the day gecko. But for the most part, it is on off heat, just like your lighting or your heat would be with um, with your snakes. It's not a huge difference there. And but the other side to think of is I only have six animals. So I don't have a collection of 30 animals that it's that's, you know, a full time job for me to care for. And that is by design, because I started to realize that if I want to care for them in the way that I think I can then I need to put a number on this, you know, you know mm-hmm. put a stop before I get to the point where it's impossible financially and time wise. Yeah. Snakes are expensive. y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, think, I think that's the appeal of the breeding though, is somewhat the fact that you can kind of, I put in quotes, make your, make money, your back. money back on how you yeah. keep. Well, yes. And that, that, that was, I mean, I don't know what your guys' experience is, but this, you do have, you know, another moment I had before I got into the podcast with somebody that made me question some of the motives in the hobby. And I'm, I've, again, I have to say carefully, this is not directed at all breeders because, of course, I'm a fan of breeders and I, I, I would love to breed myself one day. But this random lady in a convenience store had a ball python around her neck, and uh, which was already bizarre enough. And so I kind of asking her about it. And and she said, yeah, this is a ball python. It was a totally normal looking ball python. And, and, but then she said, he's got a bunch of really crazy genetics. And my friend also has one. And we're going to breed them and make a whole bunch of money. Mm. I thought, okay, that's interesting because, to, and I didn't say anything. But, but it sort of stayed in my head because business is very difficult. As you guys know, it's, it's a hustle for one. It's extremely stressful. And, and actually creating your own cash flow is not that easy. But a lot of the times, snake breeding businesses are are depicted as turnkey businesses by a female. You get a couple males or a couple females and a couple males, and you will be making money in a year. And I always think, no, that's actually not uh, pretty much completely unlikely. I'm not saying breeders don't make money. Eventually, you do, and some good breeders make good money, I'm sure. But when your product eats and poops and dies and has to be sold that's actually more challenging than like a conventional business, you know, like maybe you like, I don't know, any, any simple business, it snake breeding snakes is almost one level more challenging. Yeah. Because your stock could die at any, another other business you buy stock and you're able to sell it here. Mm-hmm. You have to make sure it lives, make sure it eats. If it gets sick, you need to take care of it. Like your stock shouldn't just disappear overnight it's an, and your whole and listen your whole collection can get disease virus all this stuff can go through and you can lose you know half of your collection in a year or something like it's not as easy as people make it seem exactly and and that was always my sense that that people get into it because they want to make money initially and and it's actually very challenging to make money now if you're breeding because it's, you love it and you enjoy it and you can find a great ethical place for these animals to go, that's awesome. And if you are making a little bit of money, that's that's great as well. But but one of my pet peeves in the industry is, is painting breeding as a, a 
a good source of generating a second income. It can be. That's 100% true for sure. Or even quit your job. I mean, that's a thing <laughs> now. It's yeah. like everyone's aspiration is to be a full-time breeder. Yeah. I think you need to go see the full-time breeders and see how big their collections actually are and how many animals they actually produce and the marketing they're doing and the sales and how high well, touch it is. I mean, it's crazy. And go to the bank and explain to them your business model and yeah. watch them point the door and say, get the hell out of here. This is a, not a business. This is not a business that someone would invest in. Now, again, fantastic that people invest their own money into this and that's great. But but to paint it as a turnkey business, it's it's just not. And I think it's one of the, you see, you see so many sad stories of people taking their collections to other bigger breeders and be like, I can't do this anymore. And I've invested $15,000 and I'm in the hole. Their house. Yeah. yeah. People have gone great lengths. Yeah, and that, that is that is a sad, and, and that doesn't even count account for the animals that they may have produced and just tried to sell off, just to keep themselves afloat to selling off to who knows who, just to you know get some cash flow. I'm sounding very anti-breeder right now. So <laughs> no, no, we're just being. I think it's being realistic because yeah. it's funny because I don't think any big time breeder says it's easy. So I'm not sure where these people are getting it's those people in from. the middle, those people who are trying but to make it themselves and they sell the dream. It's like, who's saying it's easy. Who's doing that? I won't. I'm we'll talk about this after. <laughs> I don't know anyone who's saying it's easy. I haven't met anyone who's saying it's easy. Because so. we, because we know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, I, I don't know who says that. I, I, but it is one of those memes that you see in the industry where people kind of have that, assumption or a false assumption in some ways and i, I don't want to come off as anti-breeder as well because i there, there's some really fantastic breeders out there but it's not, sort of my my point is is that it's not the only progression to make in the hobby and that's what i initially thought said if i if i feel comfortable caring for these animals then breeding must be the next step because i'm kind of bored with what i'm doing i want i want to do something more challenging and, and and we can talk about that in a little bit because i do i do think the challenge of the hobby is an incredibly important aspect of it but just opening up that increasing the, the level of your care or your enrichment can also be extremely gratifying as well and and you don't have to bring along the baggage of of what breeding can bring along yeah i think that i mean recently or over the last couple of years i've i've started building out some enclosures and stuff like that and i found i kind of get that same enjoyment out of doing that just as much as i do as producing the animals so mm -hmm. it's like uh you know, maybe we can strike a balance between this somewhere. Definitely. And the easy way to tell when you're engaged in something is when the day flies by really fast. So whether that's, you know, creating your breeding program to, to create the next morph or, you know, to, to create your next offspring or building an enclosure or doing research, like we've all been there when four hours go by and you haven't eaten, you haven't looked at your phone and you're just enjoying being in the hobby. And it's actually super important that people are doing that and, and not just reaching to like, I'm going to get a new animal because that makes you feel good. There are other things you can do that are super gratifying in the industry. And I think that's a good thing to talk about because, I mean, especially, you know, someone like you, maybe you have under 10 animals. Mm -hmm. How do you not get bored, basically? Because I feel like people's, the solution to boredom is buy a new animal. But yeah, you found ways. Yeah, well, I think I, I, I and I, I, I I'm going to say this and not, I, I don't want to come off as this genius that found this on my own. It, it, a lot of it was because I didn't have the money to get more animals. I didn't have the space to get more animals. So it was like, yeah, how am I going to not get bored? Because there are certainly times where you're just like, 
I don't hate my snake, but I would love a different snake. You find yourself looking at different snakes and, and, and whatnot. But the thing, progressing your care and finding new ways to enrich them, there's no top to that. You can continuously do that. And that's what's exciting. And, and I, I, I mean, when I had a conversation with John Courtney Smith, his, I forget exactly the quote, but it was something along the lines of the amount of enjoyment that you get from even if caring for one animal and continuously progressing the care can be massive. And, and I, I do truly believe that. And I'm slowly finding that myself. I'm not, I'm nowhere near where I want to be with my care. And I don't come off as this gold standard. And I don't make videos saying this is how you care for things. Cause I don't feel that way myself, but I'm just trying to grow and enjoying the, the process of growing. Yeah. And that's also a good point to where it's like, it's hard to make like a care video or you see people make care videos when they just did the unboxing and it's like, you haven't really cared for the animal enough to know <laughs> that, but yeah. And also like, there's so many different ways. And in Manitoba, I bet you it's much different to keep uh, reptiles than someone in Florida. So there's also like geographical, I feel like uh, considerations yes. to take in. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I have this massive, spectrum of humidity I have to deal with just in my apartment like my in the winter the relative humidity goes to six percent and in the summer it goes to 60 percent so I have this challenge with my enclosures is how do I maintain humidity in the winter but you know ventilate in the summer type thing so yeah exactly right there is always difference depending on where you are and and uh, actually this was the quote that that John had said that you know you can get just as much enjoyment in collecting information about the animals natural habitat where they live read some papers read some books look at pictures than you can at collecting individual animals themselves and i have actually found that to be true you could spend hours reading about day geckos you know giant day gecko where do they live show me pictures there's tons of pictures on iNaturalist of natural or of, of wild geckos in their natural habitat that's really fascinating and i actually think most people involved in the hobby would find that fascinating because we're all here because we love the animals and we think they're truly amazing and honestly, I think any good breeder does that. If you mm -hmm. go to any good breeder and start to talk to them about their animals, they know like the natural history of the animal. They could talk at length about the natural history because they focus, they go into, you know, they read books about it. They do all this research that is unnecessary, doesn't even pertain <laughs> to keeping the animal in captivity. Mm -hmm. But it's just that base of knowledge that makes you seem more legitimate. So that doesn't just apply to someone who's trying to keep, you know, trying to keep it exciting for themselves. I mean, it's also a benefit if you're someone who's looking to sell those animals in the future, because the more you get out the story about the animal, the more people are going to be interested in it and the more people are going to care for them officially. Oh, totally. Yeah. You can sell the story. That's exactly like, that's a really, really good way to put it. Selling the story of the animal in the wild is, is super, is, is very crucial. And, and that was one of the things that I kind of came to myself was realizing how much I love the animals and, and trying to figure out a way that I you know, one of the things that I do with animals at home is I make donations to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy, which is a Canadian charity that, a charity that protects parts of the Peruvian rainforest, Amazon rainforest. And for me, it was actually important to see if I could leverage some of that interest in the captive animals and help the wild populations as well. And, and part of that is appreciating what they must be like in, the, in, the, in their native habitats. And, and that's what I attempt to do with my own animals. And did you stumble upon the Amazon conservation because of your love of boa constrictors? Yeah, yeah. So I, I also have a rainbow boa as well, and I had these boas, and I just thought that that was fitting, and it was a Canadian charity. And at, at this time, I, w I wasn't fully 
I would say fleshed out on my foundation of my ethics and my philosophy. And I'm still not, that will always continue to grow. But at the time the podcast wasn't even started. Animals at home was basically just a YouTube channel and a blog. And I would write some sort of care things and kind of felt weird. Like I was trying to make these videos and, 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 uh, but then, I, but then I stumbled across, you know, wanting to help a, a charity as well. And the first thing they said to me was go away, basically. Oh. They, and which, which also was one of those things where they go, huh, that's weird. And the reason they said go away is because they didn't like the way the reptile hobby perceived, was perceived to them. They saw it as a, you know, a horrible thing that took animals out of the wild and took advantage of them. And of course that's not true, but that was how other people outside the hobby were viewing us. And I actually had to really convince them otherwise and say, basically, if I didn't have my own rainbow boa, I would not be interested in donating to a charity that would save rainbow boas, you know, and eventually they said yes, and we have a good relationship now. But that that was kind of the reason that I went down that path. And do you think that there is kind of a rift between, say, conservationists? I mean, obviously, between conservationists and pet keepers, but also like biologists, zoo field, all that stuff. It's, there definitely is. The, the rift is that that the keepers almost feel threatened a lot of the ways, a lot of times by the biologists, because the biologists are out there studying the, na the native animals in their natural environment. And it's almost like in some sense, we're worried that they're going to discover something that's going to make it impossible for us to care for them in captivity. And then the biologist on the flip side, really a lot of the times would rather us not keep the animals captive because they see them in their wild habitat and then they see them in captivity and there's a huge disparity between those two beings and, and they don't like it. But it, it's important to know that the hobby can be so important for science, for the scientists, you know, scientific side and, and vice versa as well. A lot of people in biology got into biology because of an interaction they had with a captive animal as a child. And it, it, it can kind of become a positive feedback loop in a sense, it's super important, but, but it is also important to talk about that rift because, because it is there and uh, it's important that we're communicating with both sides. And I think that there's kind of this, I don't know, there's kind of a mentality that kind of makes a little bit of sense of the fact that, you know, we are kind of the door or like the first step to getting these people interested in reptiles, especially at reptile shows, we've convinced parents to pick up snakes for kids. And now they like snakes and all this different stuff. So it's like it is kind of opening that door. And it's nice to have educated people and responsible people kind of, you know, introducing people to their first pet snakes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it is an important piece. And I think a lot of times biologists actually forget that that's maybe what got them into it as well. And so I mean, there's so many different issues. And, and I think as, as we grow it is things are we're kind of paving out some of those speed bumps along the way. But, you know, for example, pet tubers have become this massive thing. And I think a lot of that's people's exposure, you know, take a biologist who Google's reptile hobby, they're going to get a bunch of pet tubers, and I'm, I'm not going to slam every pet tuber, but there's a lot of not ideal you know, role models out there in terms of, of, of pets. And, and that, if that's the face of our industry, then that's actually not ideal for, for everybody. And you could see why they would not like that, you know? I think, um, and we've talked about this before, I think in any hobby and really anything you do in life, it's important to acknowledge 
the role that everyone plays in it, even mm -hmm. if that role, even if it's an importer, right? Or even if that role seems contrary to your role, like you said with the rainbow boas, like you wouldn't, you had to have that rainbow to be interested in donating to this conservation one, or you were getting more people interested in rainbow boas, or getting more people interested in donating to this because you have one, like. Mm -hmm even though it feels contrary to their conservation work, like you are playing a role in all of it. The biologists are playing a role in, you know, how we keep or how we might educate people. And we're playing a role by educating more people. Like everyone has a role in it. Like you said, the importers or wholesalers or whoever it is, like it might seem contrary to what you're doing, but people play a role. And animals may be kind of martyrs to getting people interested. And that's super unfortunate, but it's also, I don't know. It's just, it's where we are. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you, you can talk to so many biologists who are huge fans of the hobby. And, and, and I've said a lot of times in the show that the hobby can play a role in scientific research that, that academics cannot, you know, hobbyists poor, every ounce of themselves, including their money and their heart into a project. And they will come out on the other end with this massive wealth of information that a university just can't do. It costs them thousands of dollars. There's people, you know, constantly cycling through different masters and thesis projects and whatnot. You, you can't tell somebody to say, hey, spend 20 years working with this one species and then come back and tell us how it works. <laughs> but there's hobbyists all over the place that, I mean, you guys talked to Corey Imar with, you know, the, the the croc monitors and there's people all over the place that are just working with species and can tell you every little thing about them and scientists go to them and say can you help us out with this yeah and i think that if we kind of if we make that more of a usual thing because and i think part of that is looking more legitimate then that is kind of beefing up your husbandry showing them that I mean, we just went to Cody and Pia's who they're from terrestrial and arboreal. They have a giant, they have a, not giant, it's like, but a decent venomous collection, mm. but it's all in zoo quality enclosures. It's giant to and me. And it's like. Anything over zero it's is giant a zoo. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have what, how many venomous? At least 12. 50. 50, 50 30. 50? No. I was like, I don't 12, know. 12 I don't in know the main, many. I don't know. They have a it lot. It doesn't matter, but it's like, you normal person in Florida with 50 venomous snakes is going to look a lot different than Cody and Pia's collection. They, and they also have zoological experience. So that helps as well, but there's just a level of legitimacy to where if someone came into my reptile room, people would be like, are you sure that's okay that they're in those tubs? There's no, no one's questioning anything when you have these amazing enclosures with naturalistic setups and planet take tanks and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it, there's definitely, I think, an importance in appealing to the non-reptile person. And the, the really hardcore folks don't like that message because they think, well, those people actually don't know anything about it. So why would we let them dictate how we care for their animal? But but it is actually important, I think, that the initial appeal is there for the average person. We want people to think that we are responsible with the, with the hobby itself. But I, this is one of those things that maybe you guys have an opinion on. I think the rept maybe other pet hobbies like this as well. I'm not sure, but it seems like the reptile hobby does have a lot of stubbornness in it. And I, I kind of wondered if, if maybe that was because if you go back now, everybody and their dog has a pet crested gecko. But if you go back 30 years, if you owned reptiles, you were definitely 
a little bit strange in terms of just the general population. And I wonder if there was like a development of like a defense mechanism of people going like, well, you don't know anything. I, I love these animals and I'm going to care for them. And, and it's sort of carried over. That's just a, a thought that popped into my head yesterday. I wonder do you guys have thoughts on that. Yeah. It's like people, especially snake people, I think you try yeah. to, you go away from the mainstream and also like you're the, I kept it and bred it before it was cool to keep and breed also. So it's like maybe, and plus, I mean, anyone gets stuck in their ways after doing something for years and years and years. And that's and something that's worked and it's worked well. Mm. It's worked efficiently, you know, especially kept their costs down. They've been able to feed their collection. So I think there's just there's so much weight and there's so many different aspects to that. I say yes and no. Mm -hmm. Um Yes, because same thing Joe said, like, you know, they've had to like prove themselves their whole life to all these people who probably did not respect what they were doing, did not care. You know, there's I'm sure there's like some built up resentment from years of like having to be like, this is and my you life. have to prove yourself a, consistently yes, yes. in the reptile mm -hmm. community to get respect. Yeah. And yeah. They, they probably feel that I work for that. Um, My reason I say no is uh, just because the same thing happens in teaching. I mean, it's totally, to totally different, you know, hot, but it's the same thing. It's like I've been teaching for a long time. I've had to fight for the way I teach. You know, teachers are never respected. You can by find anyone. a 65 year old that wants to do corporal punishment or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And she'll be like, I did all these kids. Well, yeah, there's all, or, you know, there's all it's it's I think it's, it's hard to argue with 40 years experience. But also at the same time, you need to evolve. So kind of what's uh, and, and we have some great friends who I mean, you're talking about people who have kept for 40 years and have been at like the top of the hobby in some respects, like say Keith McPeak is a guy that is in the United States here who keeps Bolin's pythons, which is one of the like the last frontiers as far as really big python, really amazing looking and people haven't exactly been able to tune in exactly how they breed. But I mean he's been breeding and keeping for so long, but he keeps on updating his husbandry methods because first of all, this snake demands it because obviously it's not working for anyone. So you got to do it, but he's, he's also drawing in information from Ari who's in West Papua looking at the snakes. He's also looking at different scientific research, which there is almost none because Ari's done pretty much all of it. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, this is a guy who's retirement age, but he is still going leaps and bounds above from where he's been. And he keeps on like evolving and reinventing himself. Right. Yeah. And those species like that are interesting because it exposes that, you know, with the Bolin's Python, you have to do that or you're going to get nowhere with it. And other animals, we can stabilize them at a much lower level. But it, it is that excitement of constantly finding something new to provide and you know, growing that level of care that is actually really fun. And so many of us, we can get stuck in, in, in not wanting to do that because the, the animal does carry on with, without any issues. But once you start adding different things and start trying new, new care styles, it can be really exciting. Absolutely. And <laughs> Ryan Cox said, uh, it's really just poor people versus rich people, but yeah. People who have money to put into their collections, but well, it can be that. But also, if if I mean, you can start. You can have one animal and spend as much as you can on on a rack. You know, you know. So it depends how you allocate the money. And I think 
so many times we get stuck thinking that if you only have one animal, you have no credibility and it's not very fun. And you can make a beautiful enclosure and have a lot of engagement with that animal with, with just one, with one of them, you know? But in, in all honesty, as someone who does reptile shows and stuff like that, like you talk to some people and it's bad because we're holding people's opinion too highly, obviously. But um, you talk to people and it's like, even if you have a table of corn snakes, some people will talk down to you mm. and be like this and this. And I'll be like, well, and then I start talking about my olive python. They'll be like, oh, my God, like you mm -hmm. have it. It's like you need to keep on proving yourself or else people will talk down to you. And I feel like uh, and sometimes we've catered too much to that. Yeah. Yo, I, you know, it's funny because I am so I always see myself as somebody who's outside the hobby because I live in such an insular place. Almost it's sort of isolated in a lot of ways. And I mean, in the States, you guys have these massive expos and whatnot, something that I've even not even really experienced before. So I don't see a lot of that that side to it and i can almost look at it from a different perspective and and people might attack me for that and, and whatnot but it's actually i'm actually okay with that because i i have not had that experience to see that side of it and and you know it's there and obviously you guys are experiencing it as well yeah and it's it's something that um i don't know you realize like oh why am i really working with this is this giving me some type of clout <laughs> you know, or is it that I really love and I, I really love all the animals that I have, but some of the things it's like, we really love corn snakes. We really do. Yeah. But it's like, you know, why were we keeping this? Well, when I didn't really like the behavior of the animal or mm -hmm. working with the animal every day and that, you know, and that just kind of goes with, I mean, how do you feel about trying out certain species that you like? Cause I mean, I've kept things that I'm like king snakes, for example, and it's like after taking one off of your finger, you know, for the 20th time, it gets kind of old. It's like, I want to stop. <laughs> I want to stop having this snake that grabs onto me and holds on for dear life every single time I open the tub. And that's just my personal preference. So how do you feel about like kind of testing your grounds as far as what species you like? Well, I, I think that is almost entirely dependent on the community you're surrounded by. If, you, if you're surrounded by it, you have a couple even like a four or five close friends who are all reptile keepers. And if you guys can swap, if you say, look, I am sick of these king snakes, I kind of hate them. And I would love for you to take them off my hands. And if you can, even if you can sell them to good homes, I think that's totally fine. That's, I don't see any issue with that at all. Um, for me, I would, I would almost feel, I mean, I mean, there, there's a chance that it could, I could not get rid of it in a way that I'd feel comfortable with, you know, like sending it to some rando. I mean, there's some great people in the community as well, but there's just not very many of them. But I think as long as you have a good place to put them testing species, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I think it's also tough because, you know, we would be able to find someone to take the animal, but mm -hmm. a person at a reptile show, unfortunately, just picking up one snake may not have the outlet to do so. And they'll just put it on Craigslist or something. Yeah. Yeah, that is, I mean, clearly that's one of, and that was sort of the initial thing that got me rolling down this hill was looking at the, the classifieds online and going, okay, there, there's actually a lot of animals on here that are A, in rough shape, and B, the, the, you can tell the individual actually has no idea how to care for them. And they're always asking for crazy amounts of money too. They're like, I spent $800 and I'm going to give it for $700. Like you didn't spend $800 on an Exoterra you know, enclosure or whatnot. Full so setup costs $300. I'm only asking $259. Now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's sort of strange in that sense. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that 
because the reptile industry is becoming way more mainstream, it's got a much larger safety net. And there's a lot more people that, you know, you're not that weird guy on the street that has a basement full of snakes. It's actually kind of cool in a lot of ways. So that's incredibly helpful. Yeah. And we had a uh, question from the chat. Um, Jay was asking, I mean, how do you feel about, you know, kind of the decorated tubs as far as making tubs functional? And we have a we have a decent example. It's like David Brahms. He makes these tub conversion kits where you can basically make an, a, an arboreal enclosure, but it's a tub. And it's like, you know, how do you feel? I mean, I feel like there may be ways of getting in the middle somehow of like, maybe you can be a little bit cost efficient, but also have something that gives you that adequate space. Look, I am all for that. And again, I'm not, I'm not a bioactive proponent that says everybody must be high level zoo level enclosures my only goal is to make is is to allow people to start thinking that progression can happen even in tubs so i think having that arboreal little it's it's just a little 3d printed plastic device right yeah i'm actually uh, uh, i'll share, share the screen oh, yeah, yeah yeah sure yeah but he does i mean he does a bunch of different things uh, but you can see like this oh, here is a little changed. water bowl holder um it was on the perfect picture a second ago <laughs> so these are just like overturned tubs that you basically put a frame on the yeah, top and then you can actually put sliding glass in there so mm -hmm. you're basically turning a tub into an enclosure yeah no i think that's that's great and and it's you know just giving yeah those are the things i, I was thinking of that's that's what you're talking about right yeah, so he has perch systems. He has all different kinds of perches that any type of Amazon or Green Tree may like. He has water ball holders, that, but also these like tub conversion kits that mm. are really cool. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think one of the cool challenges, especially for some of the smaller breeders that have maybe some more flexibility with their bottom line, is if they're not trying to be a hugely profitable business, is is there ways you can continue to breed but add enrichment to the animal's enclosure? Mm -hmm. And And if... It's, I think that's a great challenge for the smaller breeders because they do have that flexibility. I mean, there's massive breeders that are breeding 10,000 animals. They're not going to go and buy a whole bunch of these things and, and see if it works, you know, but if we can get the smaller breeders to start experimenting and just go, Hey, look, I, the, th the thing is the payoff is not going to be something extraordinary. And, th and that, that may be the hang up on this whole scenario, but maybe the payoff will come from a personal level where you can see the animal climbing and you realize, wow, mm -hmm. if it's there, it's going to use it. Yeah, and I, th I think that goes to kind of say, I mean, how much influence we have over, even though being small breeders, we can still have influence over everything because a lot of the commercial guys who we know who do it full time, like they're not even front facing at all. So it's like the people who are actually the smaller breeders, the guys who can afford to put on a better face, I feel, because they're not running it as a full time business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we may have a little bit more flexibility of, you know, upgrading our stuff. I think I am a true believer that the small breeders have a lot more power than the larger breeders. Exactly like you're saying, you are on the internet, you're, you're exposing yourself to how you're caring for and, and you have that flexibility and, and you can promote that. You can say, this is how I care for my animals. And if you have people that are coming into the industry as non reptile people, if they look at a rack system and then they look at something that looks like this, that you're showing me on the screen here with a bunch of green tree pythons right. in these, you know, which one are they going to go with? They're going to go with, something that looks more natural and and in the end you know one of the arguments is that it doesn't make a difference to the animals but the thing is, is that it actually does and, and there, there's a lot of scientific evidence that shows that enrichment is important and 
all you have to do is give the animal an opportunity to climb and then watch it climb and go, huh, if I didn't have this, he wouldn't have done it. And I would almost feel guilty taking it out at this point. Yes. And I feel like um, right now I've been running a, a little experiment with um, I had a I had an animal that was a little bit of a problem feeder. And we did a video where we did like a beginner corn snake setup and like a very simple, you know, aspen bedding, hide, um, some foliage to move around on and water bowl. And now it's like I put a mouse in there and he comes and gets it and he's less shy, more active, if that makes any sense. Instead of you know, previously, he was in like a Chinese takeout container because, I mean, mm-hmm. that's pretty much what most uh, corn snakes, small colubrid breeders, because or else they pretty much escape everything else. Right. So you like you keep them under wraps and it's like once they once they get to this like six to eight month mark, they're easily, you know, the length of that takeout container. And I start feeling bad because they don't have obviously enough room to move around. They have no they have no height. And I've just seen the benefit of keeping this one snake like a pet. And what's and what's messed up is that even me, who has hundreds of snakes, I feel more connected because that's a snake that should be for sale. And I automatically feel more connected with him despite having 200 snakes just because he's the one off in the enclosure. I don't know why. Well, because you also put in the time to like try it out, you know, like yeah, not like you're not like you're not putting in the time for the other ones, but you're doing kind of putting in the time for things you've done a million times, you know, boiling the pinkies, doing all these, you know, all those different things we've tried seven trillion times to get all these uh, picky eaters to eat, but putting it in this like pet setup is something we haven't tried. So it's something new and it worked. Yeah. Well, and a a huge part of that is, is, is watching different behavior and interacting with the animal in a different way. And and it does give you a deeper connection with that animal. And yeah, it it becomes gratifying really quickly and you actually don't have to make a crazy change or go out and do this expensive giant enclosure. It's like one or two small things. And all of a sudden there's a deeper connection because especially for people that are coming into the hobby, we really want them thinking about where do these, what niche do these animals exist in, in the wild? And is there any elements that you can add to their enclosure that, that have aspects of it? I'm not asking you to recreate a giant, you know, Amazonian rainforest, but is there something, is there leaf litter or something that you can provide to the animal? Cause the animal is actually genetically almost crafted to exist in an environment that we, we sort of plucked it out of there. And, and yeah, they can live in a plain tub, but is there something else that we can provide them that will open up more behavioral opportunities for them, which I, it's hard to argue that that would be a bad thing. Yeah. What is, what's the hang up on giving enrichment? I mean, what is, there's no, you know what it is money, space, space and money. Yeah. Which all work together. The whole world space. But I mean, is there is there something that anyone could do? You know, to to give at least a little enrichment. You could do a a number of things. If you don't have substrate, you could add substrate. If you could, you could add a larger water dish. You could add one of those little climbing apparatuses that you were showing, or or put a stick in. I, I challenge you to just go take a stick. You can find a stick outside and I mean, clean it off, maybe put it in the oven for a little while to kill off anything and, and put it in one of the tubs and watch your snake interact with it. I promise you that within an hour or within maybe the day, your snake will go investigate it. And that is part of its natural behavior. It, it, it's, it has the ability to you know, interact with new things that are placed in its environment 
It's it's not stressed out. It's not sitting in a corner. That those are the types of things that you can do. Very very simple. Leaf litter, larger water dish, things like that are, are it's immediate payoff when you watch the animal's behavior. Yeah, and that's something that I mean we've gained from say Riley Jimison, who's also a, a zookeeper, and he I know he like puts other snake sheds sometimes in enclosures and stuff yeah. like that. And I mean we used to see you know zoos as the highest quality in keeping and now i feel like we keep totally different from them so that's kind of uh i like to i like to gain things from from them as well because they obviously are going above and beyond and they're also have to always be like pr friendly and really careful about that kind of stuff yeah well there, there are two things one your animal is really the best teacher. Watch how they behave. It's once you've worked with an animal long enough, you can understand the difference between stress and relaxed and inquisitive and hungry and, and whatnot. And, and the other thing is as, as keepers, we need to ask ourselves: do I actually think I'm done learning about this species? Like, is there, is there a chance that there's a few things that we haven't uncovered as an industry or as a hobby that are going to be, you know, mind blowing? Like, I mean, UV light, for example, was one of the things we had tons of metabolic bone disease with, with lizards and whatnot. We don't know if there's something like that, that can maybe extend the lives of our animals or, or just keep them healthier. So to, to get stuck in that fixed mindset, it is to make the statement, I know everything about this creature and I no longer need to acquire anything more. And it's actually not a fun place to be mentally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's something to where, uh, like you said, I mean, that invigorates your excitement about everything. Mm -hmm. Really. Um, I don't know. I feel like, how do we, how do we present it in a way that, you know, doesn't seem like a challenge for people to do or like that they're not doing enough. Cause I, I never want to get across the point that like, I don't want people to think that, like you're an animal abuser if you keep in a tub because that's also not true like you say it just like that like you guys have probably said in this podcast 10 times like i'm not an expert this isn't the only way i'm just saying my opinion and i think that's something that you can't ever stop saying and i'm you a have, tub keeper so you have to say it part. all the time like this is you know this is what i've learned this is the research i've done i'm not an expert like i think you i think saying it like that is the way to keep people like interested without feeling you know but it's also what are people or... typically interested in like getting bit by a snapping turtle <laughs> you know uh, my giant pythons around my neck type of thing <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Like, enrichment isn't very sexy in compared to that stuff <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's very true you you it has to be an interaction between you and your animal and not an interaction between you and a youtube thumbnail like if there's blood squirting out from a leopard gecko in someone's hand you know that I get why that gets clicks, but what's much more interesting is providing something that the leopard gecko can utilize and interact with and then getting to watch it. Like everything doesn't have to be this sensational thing. And, and, and yeah, exactly. Like I've, I've said many times that the industrialized style care for breeding might be what is necessary to keep the animals safely by keeping them clean and healthy and keeping, you know, Obviously, disease and illness is a, is a legitimate risk when you're keeping hundreds of animals. And maybe the rack systems are what you need to access as a breeder. And, and I've said that so many times. And I would ne I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a proponent for saying get rid of rack systems at all. I just think that maybe there's more we can do with the racks. And maybe the person that has one ball python or one corn snake doesn't have to keep in a plain sterile tub. Yeah, I think it's also important to to bring up the fact that, you know, if you're someone who has an open facility constantly, meaning like you're acquiring animals and 
you know, maybe you're not properly quarantining, or even if you are, you're still assuming some risk. And then if you have them all naturalistically set up and you're bringing in new animals, if you got mice in your collection, you're keeping, you're done. That'd be so terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, exactly. I mean, and, and the other thing we need to watch for as an industry is we tend to butt heads a lot, but we all, we all are here because we love reptiles and there are groups that take advantage of us fighting you know, animal rights groups and, and especially like government legislation will come in and make these just bizarre laws that clearly were not consulted by anyone that's ever seen a reptile, apparently. And and if we aren't showing that we can take responsibility for the animals that we care for and that we actually can work together as a community, then these things pop up without we don't get a seat at the table when these things happen. And there are people that are doing a great job, like Ryan McVeigh from Zill and whatnot, and, and, and Josh Jones from PJAC. There's some people that go up and bat for us, but there's also a lot that gets done kind of behind our back in a way. And we don't have a lot of power when we're like, yeah, well, we released thousands of Burmese pythons into the Everglades. And, um, you know, so it, it, it's tricky that way. Yeah, that's that's slippery. Um, Let's as not far go as, down that road. I, and I loved <laughs> I loved your podcast. I forget her name, but I believe she was a biologist down in Jenna Cole. Yeah, there you go. And that was I don't want to say anything. People will fucking have me <laughs> burned at the stake. Uh, you can go listen to that podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, we, we don't have to go down that road. Maybe I I have different opinions. No, I mean <laughs> you can go down it. I won't go too hard. Yeah. Well, well, the the only point I would make with that is is when when events like that happen, I'm, I I I don't know enough about the situation necessarily to comment about about it. But it gives us less authority when we can say, hey, we can responsibly care for these. You know, yeah, it's a terrible situation in Florida. Uh, maybe that's not the general opinion, but I assume it is. Um, that can cause bans in Minnesota. You know, when the temperature drops down to minus forty, because people at the table don't understand anything about reptiles and we can actually lose the ability to care for them, which has that cascading effect of, you know, if we can't care for them, then we don't expose kids to them who don't become biologists and we don't have breeders working on these amazing product projects and, and protecting the wild, which what I think a lot of us care about deeply. If, if we can't get together and, and sit at the table, then, then we lose that opportunity. And really the only thing that suffered throughout this whole thing is, the animals and the Everglades themselves. I mean, the whole area has been vilified. I don't see why, how like Florida tourism likes the fact that all they do on the news is tell people that there's giant pythons invading it. And then at the same time, we also can't be of the opinion of, well, there's monkeys down there. There's all these plants. Because I feel like that's what we like to do. We like to say, well, yeah, there's there's berms, there's green iguanas, there's tegus, but look at this going on. <laughs> I think it's all an issue and it's all a problem, but um, but we need to also kind of take our responsibility. Yeah, and maybe that's not a popular opinion, but but it's the very unpopular, but <laughs> is that right? Wow, that's amazing. I guess I am very insulated, but but the thing is, is what we'll find is the more responsibility we can take over everything, the more control we'll have, and and to just write off things as if it's not part of our world is to say, we don't have full control over this, which is also to say, you should make rules that prevent me from doing things. And and that's exactly what's happening in in a lot of cases, just removing the Everglades completely from the, from the, 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 the example, it happens all over the little towns or, or, or States make these crazy rules that, that don't have any bearing in science or biology, 
but but they happen, you know, so the more responsibility we can take, the better. And I don't think it's a bad thing. And maybe, maybe like you guys are saying, there's some different opinions out there, but usually responsibility is good. Yeah. Um, uh, we have this uh, American mindset, don't take my rights kind of deal. Uh, so that's pretty much how Americans operate. But yeah, but I, I hear that as well. And, and I, I find the best way to protect your rights is, is to show that we can be responsible with, with what's happening. And, and, and maybe part of that is, is just progressing the hobby. Like removing the Bur you know the the Burmese pythons from the situation in general, but can we make the hobby appeal to people that aren't in it? Like, look how cool this is. We have kids involved in science. That's amazing, you know. I think, and I think a lot of times maybe the only exposure there is to to our hobby is that people saw something on Discovery Channel that said that the pet trade is responsible for this. So um, we have it. Our our friend Sean Gray gets. Uh, he does the the herb shows. It's a reptile shows, and like people have randomly commented, like, "Oh, are you gonna buy berms and put them down in the Everglades?" And he's like, ah. <laughs> that, "That's some people's only um, their only exposure to our industry, and that's also a shame." Yes, yeah. I mean, the 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 it's a good story, right? There's giant thirty five foot snakes. Like it's always this crazy thing that doesn't exist roaming Everglades, and yeah, clearly it's an issue, but. But yeah, the the news and the media never helps us out any in any in any way almost unless it's like Steve Irwin or something. Most of the time, reptiles are painted as these horrible creatures. Yeah, the guy who would take the most venomous snake in the world by the tail and whip it around. I mean, that's that where. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's our guy. How bold he was! I don't know. I feel like that gets swept on the rug. Yeah, people now are like, you know, don't show bites, don't do this. He was it's like he was freehandedly doing, so doing all this stuff, craziness. and we all loved them. So yeah. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, <laughs> I guess. What's that? Yeah, yeah, the rules have changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, backtracking a little bit, I wanted to make sure I got in Ryan's question. It's a total subject change. But now I can't find it. Shoot. Where is it? Do, 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 ah. do, do. Um, do you do natural diets and food variation? Like actually feed on a regular schedule and different prey items? Well, it's something that I am interested in for sure. With my geckos, I do with my crested gecko. I try when he accepts other prey with my day gecko. I do. I very, I have some Arcadia diet as well as they have a few different powder diets, like a kind of a fruit crested gecko diet, as well as a, a bug sort of um, almost like a bug insect diet. It's, I forget what it's called at the top of my head. And then a bunch of different sort of insect prey items as well. And with the snakes, I have not varied, but it's something that I'm interested in doing. And I feel like because I have boas, I could probably get away with varying diets a little bit. Again, the big issue for me is finding these things. Like I, I would love to try Reptilinks. I think, I don't know if you guys have experience with Reptilinks, but I can't get them in Canada, but that's something that I think I would be interested in just to, to try variation. But I definitely do fast my boas. They, they have not eaten since December. They're due to eat tomorrow for the first time since December. And I, I drop the temperatures and, and try to replicate some natural feeding cycles, you know, just to allow them to, you know, clean out and, and go through some of those healing processes that typically fasting initiates. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a perfect example, an, an animal that, you know, sometimes in some parts of the world, they're eating only at certain times of the year they're mm -hmm. eating and they may be eating migratory birds or, you yeah. know, maybe quail or a chick, you know, if you can find it, maybe great for your boa. 
Exactly. Yeah, there, there could be. And I don't think I would have any risk of not being able to get them back onto rats if I needed to just because they are such good eaters. Now, I don't I know other species of snakes are not necessarily the most flexible, but I think maybe you can get them there. It just takes more work, but definitely something that I want to try. Yeah. And as far as like your your local scene and everything like that. I mean, how do you how do you get feeders and your stuff? Local you... scene. I'm sorry. Well, that... no. <laughs> I don't know why well, that just sounds are you, so. Are you doing like pet store? I mean, you don't have a you don't have a, a incredible amount of animals, but are are you going to the pet store or do you have some type of uh, feeding company? There are. There's oh, actually I'm lucky. There's a, a pet food market that's very close to where I live, and they they do like raw food for cats and dogs and whatnot. But they also supply rodent feeders from somebody in the province next to them next to us so so i do have a decent supply so that's actually relatively easy in terms of getting different types of feeders it, it, it would be more difficult but uh, yeah luckily feeder wise I'm, I'm i'm set for the most part and i mean where do you uh when you're in manitoba where do you originally get your animals i mean did you get your animals shipped in did you go to a local reptile show uh, yeah, most of them were from a reptile show, just the one that we have in Manitoba yearly. And there's also uh, one of them I did get shipped in from somewhere in Ontario, which maybe the listeners, if they're American, you guys have heard of Ontario or maybe not Toronto. That's, that's the one it's, we know. No, it's real that's bad it. if you don't know Ontario. Yeah, there's okay. Like good. Three places in Canada we know. <laughs> Vancouver. Well, Toronto. no, no. Fine. Okay. I feel like everyone knows Montreal. Yes. You should know Quebec, yeah. Toronto, yeah. Ontario, Vancouver, Vancouver, whatever that I think that's part's it. called. I think those yeah. five are like the ones we know. So yeah, so you've heard of I I forget if my this my the, my jungle park or my jungle carpet python. It definitely came from Ontario. I think it was in Toronto, somewhere in Toronto. So yeah, so there are different ways to get them. Of course, paying for shipping and whatnot is is a real killer, but it's not too bad. Yeah, I, it seems like people are becoming more free with uh, shipping back and forth from the United States and Canada. So I was kind of curious if you ever had experience with that. Oh, I've never done that. Actually, is it easy to ship animals between the borders like that? It seems like it's getting easier. It's expensive, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe one of our one of our shipping companies does it here mm -hmm. in a pretty like streamlined fashion. Yeah, we we have at least one. I think Reptile Express in Canada is, does a great job of shipping reptiles in the country. I'm not, maybe they do stuff across across the border as well. Yeah, that's exactly who I was thinking of. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, they're they're, they're fantastic. That's who ship my my. Carpet Python, it was pretty much turnkey. I didn't have to do anything except for pay the bill. Yeah, it would probably be like, you know, Great. 250 <laughs> to $500 uh, for us to import from there. But it makes yeah. sense maybe for, for some animals. A high dollar animal, maybe. Yeah, if you really want the animal. And, and it's, it's, it's funny how you're, the way you perceive the dollar amount can change very drastically you're like oh, i don't want to spend more than 200 and then you see it 600 you're like well 600 doesn't seem too bad <laughs> you know it, it's you can be pretty flexible with the wallet in the in the industry well when you're already spending so much you know that little bit doesn't feel exactly valuable. it's such a weird like up and down like well and we've talked about this a lot is where we spend we'll spend a thousand dollars on an animal but only want to spend five dollars to keep it Right. But also, I mean, you could you could probably buy a hundred dollar animal and spend the money on keeping the animal. So I guess it just depends on where your priorities lie. Yeah, it is. It's it is interesting, especially when it comes to morphs, because the animal is the same uh, no matter what. Essentially, you're just paying for the different, you know, phenotype basically, and so it's hard to justify spending more on on a care for an animal that's essentially the same. It just looks different. 
you know, it's it's tricky that way. Isn't that so weird, man? We we assign prices to these things that have zero like actual value. <laughs> I well, mean, that sounds bad, take, but it I mean, just like, takes a group, a large group of people liking the same thing in an animal. Yeah. And I actually, I wanted to ask you, like, what is it about boas? Since you have so many boas like that, what was that call or that attraction to you um, about boas? I, I, I'm not sure, actually. I just love the way they look. Like, even just a natural <laughs> type boa, just just the body shape. And and I, I knew that they kind of out of the box were very inquisitive animals. And and they certainly are. And and that was that was a lot of fun. I also love that part of the world, too. I've been down to Costa Rica a few times. And I, I really enjoy I haven't been to the Amazon rainforest, but I've been to Central America and, and I, I love that part of the world. So I think it was like just a combination of a bunch of things. And yeah, they're, they're great animals. Did you get a chance to herp down there or are you down there for something else? Uh, the first time I was down there to train, I, I was, a, I used to be an ass, so I didn't really get a chance to do much, but the second time we did a little bit, but it, what did you say? Oh, oh the, uh, the first time I went down there, I was, uh, I went down there to train. I was like, I used to be a, an athlete, so it was mostly training. I wasn't doing much herping. The second time I went, uh, there was a little bit, but it was actually, if you're not guided, it can be quite difficult. You just kind of walking through the rainforest, looking for stuff. And we saw a couple interesting frogs and, and, and basilisks all over the place and iguanas and whatnot. But, and, and I think we did see at least one crocodile. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you, do you plan on incorporating that as far as a, do you like, or do you want to go traveling and find herps? Is that your thing or? Well, I would love to, tra I love traveling and I would love to go down to some, some places. I don't know if it would do anything with animals at home or just for all my own sort of personal agenda, if I would, um, I definitely love going to explore. So I will eventually go, go back down to South America for sure, especially because I have this somewhat close ties with this charity now, and they are constantly inviting me down to Peru and, and kind of going to that patch of land that they have saved. And it sounds amazing. So it's definitely on my bucket list. Random aside, but have you, have you read mother of God? by paul I, rosalie no i haven't all right i'll send you one it's about the peruvian rainforest oh That's cool copy of it but oh uh, that'll yeah. be awesome yeah you should read it because it's it's all about conservation in the amazon in particular you know that area of the amazon which is like there's a very precious resource to us in in many different ways yeah if you've never been into a rainforest it's impossible to describe but as soon as you walk into it it's really a breathtaking experience it's just like the magnitude of these forests is it's it's mind-blowing and, and and maybe partly that's what has guided me in, in sort of drifting into the more enrichment style of care because you see like i did see one boa dead on the road in costa rica other than that there was no other ones but but you can imagine the the habitat and the climate and everything that they live in and it's just amazing and and you almost feel guilty in a way coming home to uh and at the time i had my boa in a in basically a plain tub and it was like huh that now that I have a frame of reference, I, I see this in a different way. How deep do you go? I've been thinking of doing like native plants, like trying to do that, trying to actually get like the native plants from the region. I mean, how close do you want to mimic nature? I can't. When you got a shit <laughs> You're looking of, at me judging yes, me. Yes, when you got a box of leaves and sticks the other day, <laughs> it just felt so wrong. And That's now, you're talking, about paying, now you're talking about paying more money. Sticks for leaves and sticks <laughs> hey well at least you have north american species so you can like just go out and get some natural stuff from outside i mean uh, there won't. i i paid someone to he do paid, that right me. thank you we have it outside <laughs> but he paid money for nature hey that's that's okay too sanitize <laughs> them dry them out yeah yeah i've done that as well i have done i've done both but i mean i 
I have gone down that road as well, looking for the natural plants. And the, the thing is, for me, I'm not the best caregiver to plants I'm finding out. So for me, it's like whatever will grow without dying easily, I'm going to start with. I know people, I, I forget what episode of the podcast, when I talked to uh, Roy Arthur Blodgett from, uh, he has an Amazon puffing snakes and he has gone like all out in terms of looking, he does like specific rain cycles and definitely plants that are in sort of native to their habitat. And it's really cool. And one day I think I would love to do that as well for the boas once they're in something a little bit bigger. I mean, boas will destroy plants, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So I have to figure out that. Oh yeah, I guess I guess that's the thing is with so many snake species, you know, the bigger they get, and most of them get big enough to pretty much ruin any of your good work. Oh yeah, then they they absolutely will. They'll just crush everything. So th that that's a challenge in itself, and and I don't know that there there's certainly challenges with going bio bioactive straight with snakes as well in terms of just like scale rot and too much moisture and things like that. So maybe the move is going to more of a you know, potted plants or or something along those lines. Yeah, kind of what are you what are you doing right now for the snakes as far as like substrate goes in specific? I mostly just use cocoa husk. I like that, especially now because it's so dry in the winter. So I that holds a little bit more moisture. So that's generally what I use. Sometimes I'll use aspen. Um, but I like the coconut the best just because I like the way it looks. And that's that's typically what I stick with. And then with my um my rainbow boa, I just kind of use a mix of some cypress mulch and, and a few other things that I just generally mix into a pot and, and throw in there. And so have you done any fully bioactive enclosures for snakes? No, I haven't. And I, I've, I've added some plants in at some points. And again, they, they, they kind of crush them. But I think I'm going to start with potted plants, like even using cork rounds almost as, as a place to store plants in. I'll kind of see what that goes like to begin with. And, and eventually, the, the enclosures I have right now are, are not capable of taking bioactive. They will just rot, I assume. So once I get some new ones, then, then I think I will try are you working with some wood or what yeah, the one kind of enclosures well, that's are... clearly wood behind him. <laughs> well, not everyone can see it. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's the, the beauty of a podcast on video. Sometimes it's easy to forget. Hey, <laughs> um, yeah, th this one is, is, is wood. It's actually an old shelving unit that I converted to a, to a uh, bow enclosure. Now it's lined with sort of rubber floor and whatnot. So I'm not too, con it's not going to fall apart or anything. But I, I do feel like if I somehow put plants in there, it's not going to last super long. So the next ones will be more of a PVC enclosure. Yes, like with the with the bioactive substrate, with the plants, with everything involved, comes the humidity, comes the warped wood, yeah, comes the rotting of the wood eventually, and yeah, yeah. So it's all it's always a challenge to figure out how the balance. Like you said, you don't want to go too far before you're comfortable, and then either damage your enclosure or damage the healthier animal. So it's just more of a steady crawl towards something that's maybe a little bit more enriching. And that one right below you, that's PVC, right? Yeah, this one, oh yeah, this one, backwards. Yeah, that's a that's just general, a sort of four by two by two PVC enclosure. That's where my, my rainbow bow is in, just obviously with the addition of needing high humidity. I, I needed something that was gonna hold, especially here with the low humidity, I needed something that could trap some some air in there. Yeah, how's your experience? Because obviously, a lot of a lot of snake keepers will go immediately to the tubs if you're having like humidity issues. And uh, what's your experience with in a kind of your arid home situation and PVC enclosure? Uh, it's been pretty good. I've had to block off a few of the vents just with saran wrap just to keep some air in there. And then obviously, I have a humidifier in the room. This this room stays closed 100% of the time in the winter, and it's just constantly being humidified. So I try to keep this the air in here at 50%. 
as best as I can. That's typically where it sits as long as the humidifiers aren't empty. If I, as soon as I open the door, it just plummets down to basically nothing. So it's more room management than enclosure management, which is actually a lot easier in most cases. And are you doing anything to keep your ambient heat up or are you keeping it pretty much room temp? Yeah, pretty much room temp. Everything. I, there's baseboard heaters in here, which are kind of a nightmare as well because they they tend to dry out the air. But the humidifier does a good job sort of counteracting that. So again, it's just mostly room temp. It'll drop down to seventy at night, and the enclosures still have heat and whatnot during the night, so the enclosures stay warmer. And for the geckos, everything turns off, and they're happy to go down into the sixties. That's no problem. But uh, in the day, yeah, up to seventy five, seventy six type thing for your uh, Fahrenheit numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's always tricky. Uh, so obviously, we've talked about day gecko, crested gecko, two boas, but what are the other? You say carpet. Carpet. Yeah, I, I have a jungle carpet python who's about is he a year old now or is he two years old? I forget. Yeah, he's, I think he's about two, and uh, and then yeah, the Brazilian rainbow boa, and that's kind of where I'm stopping for now. I I really do love each of those animals. I I, I love the way they look. I like the way they move. And I'm just going to slowly work with them and, and do what I can to, to see more of them and to see more natural behaviors. And, and that, that is the end goal for me is to see them behaving in the most natural way possible. Cause it's actually what we want. I think if you were to go herping, like you, you just love to see them roaming around outside. That's so cool. And you can actually do that inside as long as you provide them with some of those key elements, you know? And what I found interesting is that you're not, necessarily a keeper that likes to go hands-on with your animals right no I, I i pretty much never handle my animals i'm i'm very much a visual person i certainly don't handle my geckos they've really never been handled uh, the snakes i will handle more for maintenance when i need to i'll let them you know pull them out to, to weigh them and, and whatnot and clean their enclosures and some i mean when typically when people come over is when they want to hold the snakes and, th and that's totally fine but generally i'm more of a a watcher than a than a toucher <laughs> is, is no, that, I, that, yeah. I don't know if that wait I'm sorry I'm sorry I was typing I need what I just came in on the end of that yeah it sounded exactly is the way I wanted it to <laughs> <laughs> I watched my animals rather than pulling them out and, and you know handling them let's put it that way and how do you feel like I'm sure the because exposure is a real thing as far as reptiles like I don't know if you can necessarily tame a reptile but they can definitely become tolerant. So like, how do you, how do your snakes respond in comparison? I mean, for a person who doesn't handle very often. Well, the boas are totally fine. Like they are such a calm animal just by their general demeanor. And typically if I slide open the, the you know, the door to their enclosure, they will investigate the open hole and typically come out. And there's almost no stress if I pick them up. The, 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 the python, he's a little bit crazy. If I if I go in there and try to pull him out, he does get a little bit wild. But once you get him out, he's okay. But I don't handle him very often. I probably should handle him a little bit more because he's probably going to get kind of mean if I don't. Just kind of you know habituate him a little bit to handling. But the boas are just they're totally fine. It's it's really amazing that they it's like they just totally tolerate it. I've never been struck by any of them. The three of them have never struck me or bit me. And uh, yeah, they're they're just super calm. How much of that is the animal? How much is that you being a educated keeper as far as, you know, not going in there and grabbing them or something? Well, it's probably a combination of both. I, I think that typically boas have a slightly calmer demeanor and, and then obviously not throwing my hands in and ripping them out 
plays a, a big role in them not being aggressive, letting them come out or, or just, you know, giving them a quick little tap with the hook, just to let them know I'm there. I think really does help a lot. They, they, I mean, we all know to read the body language of a snake. If you're going in there when it looks defensive or hungry, you're probably going to get tagged and just reading the animal is, is super important. Absolutely. And, um, as far as your podcast, I feel like we've gone this whole time. Now. <laughs> podcast. And uh, did you did you start like a blog before your podcast or? Yeah, well, I, my I it's I guess my life kind of came to a, a change at one point because I was an athlete for my whole life and that was my main focus and I was kind of going to school and I, I finished school and I retired from the sport and I was sort of left with a bunch of time like I was sort of used to training three to four hours a day my for the last decade of my life and then that was a big hole and I needed something to do with it I still coach swimming that's a sport that I that I was in and but I still kind of had this flexibility during the day so I decided I needed to utilize my time for something so I started this blog and I think the very first thing I did was was convert these these shelving units into enclosures and, and I made that video and then I started writing a blog and just kind of went from there and I, I I hit a point where I realized that to continue to produce content on YouTube, you almost need to perpetually buy a new animal to, cause you're out of ideas. You know, it's like, well, now I gotta go get a, something different to talk about. And uh, I wasn't willing to do that cause I don't have the space or the money. Board and, videos are pretty lame if you're doing the same animals every <laughs> single month. Yeah, exactly. Like here it is again. This is the same guy you saw last time. It's like, you're going to run out of ideas so quickly. So the podcast just sort of came to me and, uh, I didn't really have a great vision for it, but I just started it before I could kind of talk myself out of doing it. And then it just sort of accumulated from there. And and it's, I guess my first, I published them first in the sort of fall of 2018 and, and every two weeks have been sort of posting an episode since then. And it's been an amazing amount of fun. And I've, I mean, you guys would know this, but you get to talk to just incredible people all over the world. And did you have any like intention or focus going in on it and what you wanted to achieve with it? Well, I left it fairly broad. Obviously, I had that sort of foundation of of wanting to discuss ethics of keeping the animals. I did something I did want to explore, like how, what are we doing here with the hobby? Are there other things that we aren't doing that we should? Are there things that we're doing that we shouldn't? And and so so that was sort of, sort of driving some of it. But I also called it animals at home for a reason because I wanted to leave that door open for me to basically talk about whatever I want. I didn't necessarily want it to just be a, a reptile podcast and it's been 90% reptile, but I've thrown in some other <laughs> things now and again. Yeah. The reptile world just keeps expanding. I was like, Oh, I'm going to run out of people, but you don't run out of people. You just keep thousands of people to talk to. It goes deeper and deeper. You find a, a weird corner with some different people and you, it's crazy. Yeah, it just goes and no, it's, it's been awesome. So, so that was kind of how it started and, and I didn't have a super specific focus, but it's all, it's sort of refined the focus as I, as I've worked through, you know, producing the show. And I think one thing to, to note is the fact that you have, you know, a lot of the other reptile podcasts are fairly casual, fairly conversational. You have gone more of the edited route, um, somewhere kind of in the middle of there. Yeah. Yeah, the the show itself is basically not edited, but I do I do structure it fairly tightly on my end. The the guest knows a few of the questions that I'm going to ask, and I sort of frame it in a way so they understand what we're going to talk about. And then I I typically have some sense of how I want the conversation to go. I I want it to flow as well. I don't want it to seem like 
question, answer, question, answer. I do want it to be conversational, but I also have some sense of, of what I want to get from each guest. And, and that was just the sort of the, the way I decided to take the show. I think both ways are, are great. Like, this is awesome. I'm, I'm enjoying having just a casual conversation. And, but for me, I'm almost, I'm a little bit more, uh, anal in a way where I like, I need to have like a little bit of an idea of what's going to happen. You know, I was about to ask, is it more just your personality? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to have some prep done. <laughs> well, and I, I love basically what I was trying to say is I really love your like, uh, almost like I think NPR does this a lot where the person starts talking and then you fade out and then you kind of explain what's going on and then you fade back in and just, I love that style of it mm -hmm. and that editing. So yeah, I really appreciate yeah. that aspect. Yeah. You know, it, you learn it from learning from a lot of, you're just listening to other shows. It can be, it can, and you guys are great at this as well, where when the person's talking, not constantly going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. It's like super annoying to the listener. <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh -huh. it's just learning how to have conversations. It, it, it's a skill in itself. And you find that as soon as you're on air with someone, you, you need to navigate and not get you know, yourself stuck in, in sentences and, and whatnot. I think it's a lot easier for us doing it video because mm -hmm. I can oh, shake totally. my head. I can mm -hmm. shake my head. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, when I'm recording shows. I'm just shaking my head the whole time. Like, yes, I'm listening, but I'm not going to say that I'm listening. <laughs> right. The one time um, we were on our friend's podcast, um, her pediculture podcast and theirs is just audio and you know i'd done our podcast so many times but it was like something completely new doing just audio i didn't know where to look i like didn't know like where to be or we were stepping on it, each other all over the place we ended up separating right he was in the bedroom and i came downstairs because it's like we we couldn't like be in the same room but not be like it was it was it's weird how different the same you know it's still a podcast but doing it audio it's so different still it is so different. Yeah. And I, some people, I, I, they'll turn the camera on, but then ask that I don't use it to publish onto YouTube, which I'm totally fine with. But it's definitely a lot easier when you can see their, you can read their face a little bit or else you're like, are you even there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that enables us to kind of take a back seat. I know that this one's been like very conversational back and forth, but, it, you know, sometimes you just take a back seat and like let, you know, especially with, um, you know, say that interview that you had. Sorry, I forgot her name again. But it's like at times it's like, you know, you could hear that she had a direction she was going. So like you let her give her full thoughts on everything and give it some space because, um, you know, someone effectively getting a point across, it doesn't need your interruption in the middle, which yeah. I mean, we're all trying to learn. But Well, and, and I mean, there's also the issue of, of having it over the Internet. There's that delay. So you almost you, you, you get stuck in those where you're interrupting each other. And it's like, oh, sorry, you go, oh, no, you go. And see, so it's better to just stay quiet and let them finish completely before you jump in. And there's some people who talk that way, though, that yes. like the They're way slower. they talk, just not slow, but like yeah. pause. Like some people, just the way they talk has a pause in it. It's like, ah, oh, shit, I, <laughs> I thought they were done. And there's some podcasts where we've done it like 30 times and it'll be over. And we're like, why do we keep doing that? But yeah. it's so hard when that's just the way they talk. And we already have like this question, like forming in our head from like the first sentence they said, and yeah. we're just like trying to wait. And then you fuck up and you both talk at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. The hardest thing is listening to the guest and remembering the question you want to ask because you're just like, please finish so I can ask this question or else I'm going to forget. You're not even really listening at that point. You're just repeating the question a thousand times in your head. And then they finish. We're like, Oh God, I didn't even hear what you said. <laughs> it's so true. It's yes. a, there'll be podcasts and I'll talk to Joe after. And I'm like, babe, 
I don't know what half the things we talked yeah. about were. Oh, yeah. I've done those. Because you're just trying not to fumble it. You're just like, <laughs> let's just not screw this up. That's why it's like, it's almost better to be a listener. You learn more. Oh, because yeah. We're always trying to totally the next thing. So I, I rarely re-listen to my episodes because by the time I've edited them, even though I've edited it, I'm listening to it, but you're not really listening to it when you're editing it because you're just kind of listening to the sound and not the words. And then once in a while, I'll go put the episode on in my car or something. I'll be like, wow, I just, I barely remember any of this. This is <laughs> a great episode. <laughs> what I'm always impressed of, about you though, is that you do some of these episodes on your own and it's so fluent and together. And also you do them on video as well. So like, is that just preparation? Yeah, and, and some camera tricks as well, depending on which one you're specifically talking about. Like there's, if the ones that I do on my own are typically, especially if it was filmed, I have a script planned and I don't do a lot of these, but the ones that, that are, I have, sometimes it's a script or sometimes I have an idea that I want to work out and it's almost like thinking out loud. But a lot of times when the camera angle changes, that's me taking a break and, you know, screwing up on a word and resetting. And, and when you listen to it or when you watch it, you can't tell. But it, it looks like, I, you know, it's a one fluid thing. But sometimes if I'm reading something for 30 minutes, I was sitting in the chair for four hours. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'm like this guy could just read off the, or can just talk for this long by himself. That's really like and there's people who can do podcasts like that. And that that's always amazing kind of blows my mind. Yeah. The the one that I released in January that was by myself. I did basically did that one in one shot, but it took me quite a few chances to to do it. It was so hot in this reptile room at the end. Literally the recording you see on YouTube, I am not wearing pants. I'm just <laughs> I'm just in my boxers because I'm just so hot. I'm like trying not to sweat on camera. I'm just trying to get through this 30 minute, like it was like five thousand word thing that I wrote. I'm like every mess up, you're like, damn it, gotta go back. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was uh, actually when you, you kind of read out your article, right? Out loud? That's right, yeah. So can you yeah. explain a little bit of the article and kind of what your general idea was? Well, that article in general was, I, I stumbled across this this paper that discussed, uh, maybe some people are familiar with the five freedoms of animal welfare. So it's freedom from thirst, freedom from hunger. There's sort of five just general characteristics that I think it started in the UK that was designed to, sort of monitor the way we were, they were keeping farm animals and gave them the, the farmers or the industry a list of, you know, you have to hit some of these points on the head to, to make sure you're caring for these animals ethically. And, 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 and the, the, the paper that I had found was taking some of those freedoms and rewriting them in ways that, that made it easy for people to follow freedom from thirst rather than saying freedom from thirst. It was, you know, access to fresh, readily access to fresh water and, you know, same with food and mental enrichment and, and space and, and comfort and whatnot. So basically what I did is I took that and I just did my best to do an audit of the reptile industry. Now it's like, if we're going to use these, we don't seem to have a, a solid structure of how we operate. Everybody has their own idea of things, which is, which is great, but we don't have a governing body, obviously, and we don't necessarily want one, but maybe we want to come up with some rules that typically we want to follow. So I, I use those five provisions and, and audited the reptile industry. And, and specifically, I was looking at industrialized style racks. And, and the question was basically, is this for the average pet keeper who's you know keeping one or two animals is is this necessary or or are there some things that we can encourage people to do that can you know bump them off of that not to go right full active by bio or bioactive zoo level but is there something that we can give them to show them that there's more progression that can be made and you know one of the examples that i used that we see in the fish hobby was was breeding of discus when you look at a discus breeding setup it's very plain 40 gallon 
tank, couple breeding posts or breeding cones. There's nothing else in it. But if you Google discus tank, you'll see these beautiful giant fish tanks that are planted and they, they, they look like these Amazonian floodplains and they're really amazing. And that was more of my question is for some reason we get stuck in keeping, everybody's keeping, you know, for, to follow the metaphors, keeping your discus in these breeding tanks. Maybe, maybe we're missing some of the point here. And that was kind of how the article went and somehow it took me 5,000 words to say it. <laughs> but I think I saw some people that I wouldn't necessarily think were open to that idea and I saw them share it on Facebook. So I think that that really has something to say with how you approach the topic, how you explained yourself, how, I guess, kind of objective, but also not, you know, not very judgmental at the same time. So kudos for, for doing that. Yeah, well, thanks. I, I appreciate that feedback. And, and one of the ways you introduce ideas to people is to show them the idea without bringing along some sort of ad hominem attack. As I said, we're always, we're here because of the animals. And I can assume that the ball python or ball python breeder next to me that's keeping industrial racks loves their animals just as much as I do. So you don't go in guns blazing and chop everybody's head off and try to make a change. It's, it's more so asking questions and getting people to think about things in a different way only because that's the things that are going on in my mind. And I feel like I'm just putting them out on the internet for people to kind of be involved in. Absolutely. And we are winding down here, but as the general direction of the hobby, I mean, do you feel like we are getting to this point where more people are going this direction, more people are going naturalistic, bioactive, all of that stuff, and also paying attention to things like UV and all these things that we didn't mess with that much before? In general, I'm very optimistic about the hobby. I think that the industrial breeding phase was a, a, a phase that will still always be here because we obviously need animals to supply the market, clearly. That, that is a hugely engaging part of, and that was the other thing I had mentioned in the article, breeding is, is fun and it's a way you can advance the hobby and so it's always going to be here and that's fantastic. But I'm also starting to see new people come into the hobby and, and not necessarily starting with the, the tub and, and going to something a little bit bigger with more enrichment. So uh, that, that is, that's awesome. And I think it's going to continue to do that. And I think it may have been during your, your TC interview, uh, TC Houston, mm -hmm. and he said something like, you need to try to educate the new people who are coming into the hobby. And because that will eventually kind of just work itself out because honestly, the older, the older generations are going to be stuck in their way to a certain degree. Yeah, definitely. If, if we start with the, the point of if the, if the goal is, Hey, these animals are actually wild animals and, and, and part of our responsibility to them should be providing something that allows them to behave in the natural way. And, and that's all that I say is we actually want their animals to behave in ways that they naturally do because that's what they're genetically created to do. G genetically, they're designed to dig or burrow or climb. And I think it's a duty for us to actually provide some of that to them to allow them to display some of that. And in turn, the, the caregiver gets this giant benefit because it's really fun to watch. And I think you're absolutely right. If, if that's the sort of the foundation that we set, I think as the older school people kind of move out of the hobby, we'll have this really good fresh mindset. And where do you feel that you're keeping your progression as well as like podcasts and everything like that? Like, what are you looking forward to in the future? Well, I'm just going to continue to 
advance my care as I, as slowly as I do. Like the other thing I say all the time is I'm not rich. I can't just go out and, and upgrade all these enclosures to how I think I should. So I'm just slowly going to do these things like last or two weeks ago through the UVB light on. And eventually these enclosures will be, uh, you know, larger enclosures. And, and that's my goal. Just maybe every couple months add something new. I, my goal is to not get any more animals and just work with the ones I have and, and just do the best to provide that natural care. And then in terms of the podcast, I'm just, I, I don't really have a, an end game for it. I'm just going to keep producing the show and, and hopefully exposing the hobby to, to people. And I get all sorts of incredibly kind messages from people that, that are enjoying the show. So that usually keeps me going because as you guys know, it's actually quite a lot of work and, and a fairly big commitment. And sometimes you don't want to do it at all. And you guys, I'm sure get tons of messages as well. So, so that helps, but. Yeah, it's like, I don't know if people realize that from the podcast itself, you know, we don't make any money Yeah, or, you know, there, it's really not it's fruitful to us to talk to people it's the people that we get to talk to and also the people that we get to expose to our audience at the same time out of the kindness of our hearts We're no no it's yeah, kind of no. selfish we get to meet cool people and talk to <laughs> yeah people. but we share that with but we share people. it which makes it okay <laughs> less selfish and I think the and the only other thing that I would say that we can finish off in is is that it's really and this is something that else that I had mentioned in an article is it's important to understand the place and, and the role the hobby plays in your life. And I think for almost all of it, it is, it, it generates a, a sense of purpose and a responsibility. And it's really important that we nurture that. And, and we're all here for that. This idea of, I mean, I've talked to so many people and I'm sure you guys have as well, who their animals have actually saved their lives in some ways. Either they were in a horrible spot, they were making terrible decisions with their life, they were into drugs or alcohol and they couldn't control themselves. And a lot of times just caring for a crested gecko has changed the trajectory of their life. And in turn, that sort of radiates if you have somebody in your friend group that's super depressed and upset and, and that crested gecko changes their life for the positive that radiates amongst the friend group and radiates them, you know, amongst the family. And, and I think that's really important. And we certainly don't want to lose that because there are some people who actually rely on the hobby for, for their health. And, and, um, it, it's, it, that's what we want to, we do want to make sure the responsibilities ta we're taking that responsibility for the hobby and, and progressing it to the level that it can be progressed together. Absolutely. I think uh, these animals have presented us all, you know, the three of us so much. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we need to be stewards of the hobby because, you know, it has benefited us in many ways, just mentally. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's nice having a hobby that is uh, not destructive and you can make it into a very positive thing. Absolutely. So Dylan, if anyone wants to reach out to you, where can they find you? You can go to animalsathome.ca. That's the Canadian. I'm sure you guys no are <laughs> So, so many people are like, I sent you an email, but I didn't, you didn't respond. I'm like, well, you probably sent it to .com and somebody random got it. So anyway, animalsathome.ca. But really the easiest, if you just Google animals at home, my YouTube channel will pop up and you can search animals at home on any sort of podcasting app and it's there. And same with Instagram. I, I'm pretty bad with my Instagram. I'm, I'm not a huge Instagrammer, but I do post when I post new episodes and videos and whatnot. So I'm out there if you search it. Awesome. So I'm in it. Mm -hmm. oh, Another <laughs> level of podcast, having two people not talking over each other. Um, if you want to reach out to us, Port City Pythons on YouTube, in, well, Port City Pythons podcast on YouTube and Port City Pet 
which we promise we'll be putting another video These are out. are all new. I'm, I'm actually soon. working with an editor now, and we're trying to severely figure things out as far as uh, severely. Yeah, that's what, we, what I'm saying is it's been a disaster, but we're slowly trying to figure it out. And I think that's what happens kind of when you bring anyone new into the equation. And like, uh, and for me, to relinquish control is not easy. Damn. Yep. So we're um, working on okay, it. Okay. Great outro. Uh, <laughs> Port City Pythons on Instagram, Port City Pythons on Facebook, portcitypythons.com. To see us in person, the next place we will be is at the New Orleans Herp Show Yo, next month, hometown. less than a month. Um, if you know me, I'm from New Orleans, so I'm beyond excited that it lined up that we're going to be in New Orleans for the show. Also, Sean Gray pretty much has the best shows next to Tinley, in my opinion. And so I'm excited to finally get to experience one of his shows. Um, and total side note, my best friend's getting married. And that's awesome. And so, yeah, see us in New Orleans. And then after that, we'll be in Syracuse uh, April 26th, I think. Somewhere in April. We'll get we'll start promoting that show soon because uh, I'm really looking forward to Steve's show. And it will be their first show there in Syracuse. And they've already gotten a bigger venue and it's going to be huge. So uh, we're really excited about that. Thank you guys all for listening to us as well as thank you, Dylan, for hanging out with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute blast and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the two hours. Absolutely. It kind of flies, right? It does. So thank you guys all for listening and we will see you guys all next week. Mm-hmm.